you know, there's, there's lots of people with great ideas, maybe they're in connections or highly motivated, but they can't write. And at, and now, like, that's a solved problem because you could take a set of bullet points that contain all the good ideas and have a chatbot write the, the, write the script around it. And I think this is going to be really perturbing to to um, sort of the professional managerial class, for lack of a better word, because, you know, they've really been benefiting from a, a certain rent, you know, to the extent that this accelerates things to such a degree that, uh, you know, hedonic adaptation doesn't kick in <laughs> and your, your power is just off <laughs> all the time. <laughs> um, you know, I really do, do think it will force uh, broader structural reforms. And a lot of the structural reforms are, are being prevented right now because of different kind of wicked problems, different coalitional dynamics. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. And this, this is an episode I've been really excited for. And it's not just because it's a new year. I hope you guys all enjoyed uh, your time with your family. Or listening to the episodes with Sam Aburia and Tyler Cowan. Both are very good uses of your time, I'm sure. But we are back with another episode. And today we're speaking with Sam Hammond. And Sam Hammond has been a very interesting thinker ever since I actually met him in person. And he has very clear, articulable ideas coming from the policy side, feeding back into the development of technology, artificial intelligence, industrial policy. You'll see all of that in the episode. We talk about religion, Peter Thiel, artificial intelligence, Emma Goldman, communism, critical theory, Georgism, industrial policy, the quote-unquote email cast, uh, word cells, um, writing ability versus numerical ability, the effect of AI on bureaucracies, incentives and defection, prisoners' dilemmas, and much, much more. It really is a wide-ranging uh, conversation, and I do encourage you also to check out Sam's writing, which I've linked in the show notes. And, as always, you know, it's a new year, I tell you guys this every episode, maybe this time you'll actually listen. Uh, the best way to help the show is to let a friend know. I know there are lots of very interesting people who listen to this podcast. I'm sure you very interesting people have very interesting friends. And if those friends are anything like you, then they might enjoy and might have the chance to listen to this podcast as well. And might even thank you for recommending the podcast to them. So you can help your friend, you can help the show for sure, and you can really help us reach the exact type of audience that we are trying to reach. And if you enjoy the show, hopefully that'll be good. And without further ado, here is Sam Hammond. Will the future be more or less religious? That is the question. Um, it is a question. <laughs> well... So, you know, I, 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 have, I have this way of looking at religion for background. My master's thesis was on economics of religion and trying to model uh, religions as sort of providers of club goods. It's the very profane way economists approach the issue because there's this, this sort of obvious functional role of religion. It's not all religion does, but, um, uh, you know, especially organized religion where people congregate in one community, there's an, a lot of kind of implicit social insurance going on. People watch out for each other. They, they pool their resources through the collection plate. And uh, there was this open question about why the U.S. secularized later than Europe. 
and what what drives secularization in the first place. So my, my thesis was looking at the idea that um, social insurance is really the key thing, the key functional role of religion. And one of the reasons the U.S. secularized later was because of our sort of our, the arrested development of our, of our welfare state. And if you look at, uh, you know, cross-nationally, uh, places like Sweden and the Nordic countries are the least uh, religious, at least in terms of active theistic belief. Um, and they also tend to have the most comprehensive welfare systems. Um, and so I did a bunch of empirical work trying to defend this in the U.S. context and connecting to Medicaid and so on. So I think for there to be a rebound of organized religion, there needs to be a new functional role for people meeting in, in common places and ascribing um, to different belief systems, right? In, in, the, in the classical econ conception, the, the, the weird beliefs that you have to ascribe to or commit to uh, to be part of a religion are in, in part a kind of selection and commitment device. You know, um, if Jehovah's Witnesses uh, have to forego blood transfusion, that's a very strong, like real costly signal of commitment because uh, it's not just cheap talk. There's actually costs associated. Um, and that's one re- one reason why stricter religions tend to grow faster. Um, uh, and if you take like labor unions as an analogy, labor unions have declined for many reasons. But one of the reasons is because they, they were kind of defunctionalized. You know, we moved a lot of labor regulation into OSHA and the Department of Labor and these statutory laws. Um, and so there is less and less for labor unions to negotiate over. And in countries where they still have strong labor unions, again, like the Nordics, you know, that's because they uh, have delegated a lot of that regulatory power to collective bargaining. In some cases, like letting the union run work, workforce development programs and unemployment insurance and so forth. So, you know, I think in a big, in a big picture, a lot of America's dysfunctional culture is really a defunctional culture. We've kind of removed the functional, uh, the functional purpose behind common cultures, including religious cultures. So the open, the, the, the the way I'd answer this question is, is, is there in the future going to be um, new kind of loci to organize around where something like something that resembles religion becomes functional again? Um, that, you know, this sort of gets a little bit into AI uh, because, um, you know, there's this uh, work by uh, Joe Henrik, the uh, evolutionary anthropologist who traces the rise of monotheism to the development of, of nation states and city states in the agricultural revolution. Um, and, and sort of these big gods, these sort of abstract monotheistic gods paralleled the development of centralized states. Um, and so there could be a future where technology leads to a much more radical decentralization. And, and with that brings a more sort of polytheistic, uh, culture um, and then there's also this question about around AI where, you know, you could easily see, I, you already start to see it with like that, that guy from Google who was convinced that the Google Lambda chatbot was sentient, um, that there's a sort of bell curve of gullibility. And um, even though AI hasn't yet passed the Turing test, it's close enough for people on the left hand of that bell curve. And as it steadily creeps up and becomes much more convincing, you could easily, and, and customizable, you could easily see people start forming kind of cargo cults around their preferred AI. Um, and they, you know, it's sort of a return to the kind of forager pre-modern uh, religion, religions. It's, it's not, um, it won't be so monotheistic. It'll be much more animistic, right? Because a lot of our physical world will suddenly have 
intelligence imbued in it and this sharp dichotomy between spiritual and physical won't, won't, won't be as real. But because of customizability, you also won't have people having to, you know, uh, homogenize around some lowest common denominator God. They could each have their own personal God or, or a community God that's optimized or, or trained specifically for their needs and would serve as a kind of Cassandra that they could go to in the Holy of Holies and ask for their advice. So I, I do think there will be, I do think secularization has sort of reached its peak. Um, but what comes next won't look like 18th or 19th century religion. It will look uh, quite different, I think. Right. Uh, so in one of your pieces, you mentioned Peter Thiel saying uh, AI is communist, uh, crypto is libertarian, and you said the opposite is the case, right? Uh, you already mentioned this a little bit. But I think this is a good way to get into it. Well, first of all, why does Thiel think that, and uh, why do you disagree with him? Well, to, to give Thiel's due, it, it, sort of prima facie looks plausible, right? Because, you know, crypto, uh, you know, Bitcoin especially sort of has this ethic of uh, sort of agorist economics. We're going to build a counter financial system that's going to disrupt the central banking monopolies and so forth. And it'll, you know, you know, there's a long tradition in sort of libertarian thinking that, you know, money, the hardness or softness of money drive, <laughs> drives everything around us. Um you know, setting aside how plausible that is, uh, there's at least a, a case that crypto, you know, enables, um, you know, not just criminal activity and, and dark money to move around, but at some point, potentially just everyday normal economic life in a way that's shielded from government oversight. So there, there is a, there's a story there. Likewise, if AI, you know, you already see this in China where, you know, they have surveillance cameras everywhere and they can, if there's a warrant out for your arrest, they can identify you by your, the way you walk, your gait, recognition technology. Um, and so there's definitely a potential for AI to be a very centralizing force. The question I have is what is, what is likely to happen in countries that aren't as far along, uh, to totalitarianism as China? Places where there's still lots of, um, open access and where these, these AI tools will inevitably diffuse to the network edge, right? Um, you, you know, peop, you could right now some of these larger models you, re, requires like a bunch of AWS uh, t uh, compute time to <laughs> to really run. Um, but we're on a on a cost curve where eventually, um, you know, optimized models will fit on your cell phone. Um, and you know, when when everyone and their grandma has the capabilities of a CIA agent. In terms of intelligence gathering, being able to, you know, spoof, uh, spoof anything they want, being able to, you know, have an army of AI um, laborers, essentially being, you know, running their court cases or so on and so forth. I think it's going to be much more decentralizing than centralizing. There will always be, uh, you know, the people at the cutting edge who have the hundred trillion parameter models that no one, that ordinary people can't access. Um, but there will be a layer of app development below that and then a layer of completely decentralized open source below that. Um, and I think it strongly favors decentralization for that reason. Right. Uh, have you ever read this uh, Emma Goldman? Have you ever read the Emma Goldman quote about like majorities? Um, maybe. What is it? Uh, okay. I just I'm just pulling up up now. Uh, if I were to give a tendency of our times, I would say quantity. The multitude, the mass spirit dominates everywhere, destroying quality. 
our entire life, production, politics, education, rests on quantity, on numbers. The worker who once took pride in the thoroughness and quality of his work has been replaced by brain, brainless, incompetent automatons who turn out no, enormous quantities of things, valueless to themselves, and genuinely injurious to the rest of mankind. This quantity, instead of adding to life's comforts and peace, have merely increased man's burden. Uh, yeah. No, and, that, that's uh, getting it. Yeah. That's getting at a sense that was, you know, very common, especially on, you know, the the Frankfurt School and prefigured the New Left of the, the critique of mass production, um, and obviously very in their in their case very influenced by Auschwitz and the Holocaust as a sort of you know here's here's industrial capitalism taken to its logical conclusion. We can, we can have mass assembly car lines, but the same technology can produce mass terror and death. And and that sort of ex- was, ended up being extended to this critique of consumerism and mass society that uh, that these capitalist institutions were homogenizing culture. You know that the you know everyone was going to learn English and uh, all your local cuisine would be replaced by McDonald's and so forth. Um, you know my my critique of that is you know it's, there there is some of that obviously, um, but. It, it's also not a critique of capitalism per se, but really a, a particular era of transaction costs where in the mid 20s, in the second industrial revolution, the late 19th century, early 20th century, it became much the, the way the, the way technology developed made it much easier to build, you know, sort of high modernist institutions, large, uh, you know, state building projects, FDR and so forth. And that was paralleled with, uh, the kind of old progressive era of, uh, really big companies scaling up and um, and that did that that was designed to capture certain economies of scale and and to economize on transaction costs right we have NIST that, st- that sets standards for the US and for the world on you know what is a kilogram <laughs> right and and all these other different things that enable a degree of harmonization and coordination um, we have you know, the ability to pump out millions of Toyotas that all look relatively the same, maybe you can pick the interior or something like that, but you're economizing on a certain transaction cost and efficiency of scale. And so it's not an intrinsic feature of capitalism. It's really a contingent one. And if AI does lead to a kind of world of mass customization and, uh, and DIY, um, you could see that turn back the clock quite dramatically. Um, Balaji Sunavasan has this analogy to laminar flow, right? Like if you have a very viscous l- liquid and you put in, you know, some food coloring, uh, you can, you know, turn a crank that's, that, that rotates the liquid and it looks like the, the food coloring is being mixed in. But if it, if it has the right viscous properties, you can unturn the crank and get back to your original state. Um, and so, there's a, a sense in which I think uh, the next stage of technological development will be unwinding certain features of the mid 20th, mid 20th century high modernism. You already start to see that in media and uh, sort of the things that are more exposed to information technology where, uh, you know, the Walter Cronkites of the world are giving way to the Rush Limbaugh's um, and sort of a throwback to when uh, news was much more decentralized. Um, and open access. And, and so that's one reason why in my blog, I also do a lot of thinking about the development of these institutions beginning in the 1800s 
to draw lessons about how, you know, if you, if you reverse the chronology, uh, you know, what, what things could arise. Right. Uh, I think the sentiment, the, the interesting thing about Emma Goldman is that, yeah, she was referring to this era of industrial, uh, in industrial change and that ending up just ultimately trickling down to the media habits where this is much more like a direct thing on the media habits, right? In terms of AI, in terms of these large uh, language models that are able to compose uh, text that is able to compose poems, plays, articles, of course, right? And really, the question I think with regards to this is like, what is the what is the practical effect of driving that co- the cost of that to zero, right? Like, is that a good thing? Does it, you know, as as you say, or as Balaji says, does it enable basically a kind of um, does it enable people to explore elsewhere to do better things with their life or does it just, you know, basically fill the market with this kind of thing, right? Make it so yeah. that because the cost is to this kind of thing is so low, uh, you know, even though there might be alternatives that uh, relatively rise in value, right? Uh, that they might still, uh, that they might still kind of not be worth it because the cost of producing them is just so much higher, even though they are more kind of unique and valuable compared to, you know, the AI produced, uh, pablum. Yeah. You know, it's also useful to read like the classical economists like Ricardo and, and Henry George and these guys, because they were sort of solving for the long-term equilibrium, right? Like when all these other rents get driven to zero, the last thing that will, that will accrue rent will be land. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, you know, in my, in my job at, at a think tank, you know, I have a, a team I've had to hire. And in my experience, one of the scarcest factors is writing ability. You know, there's, there's lots of people with great ideas, maybe the right connections or, um, or so forth, uh, the right attitudes, even the highly motivated, but they can't write, you know, to save their life. Um, or they can put something down on paper, but it's not, persuasive in the right way or, or doesn't, uh, isn't bilingual with, with different ideologies. And, at, and now like that's a solved problem because you could take a set of bullet points that contain all the good ideas and have a chatbot write the, the, write the script around it. Um, and then if it's not good enough, you could say, well, you know, do it in the style of the economist or do it for a progressive audience or, or what have you. Um, and I think this is going to be really perturbing to, to um, sort of the professional managerial class, for lack of a better word, because, you know, they've really been benefiting from a, a certain rent. You know, they've been deriving a rent from from this kind of word sale activity being a, a scarce, lucrative commodity. Um, and if you're, you know, if you control something scarce, you can extract rent from it. Um, and so I think in, in, the, in, the, in the medium term, this is going to be like incredibly egalitarian in its effects because it will take people who, who are just as intelligent, uh, on many dimensions, but maybe lack a certain articulacy and, and, and put them on a level playing field. Um, and existing sources of status will, uh, will decline. And even looking back at, at, you know, early 20th century intellectuals, the socialists and so forth, like Emma and, and others, you know, they were really engaged in a kind of leisure class activity. You know, to be able to sit around in a salon smoking cigarettes and talking about like capitalism is uh, is a luxury, and being able to do that and, and publish you know 
manuscripts and so forth signals to everybody that you have the, all the free time to, in the world to, to do this kind of stuff. Um, uh, and, and so like, ironically, there's a bit of a class critique here where AI could be very, very positive from a, um, a, a class war dimension because these scarce commodities that, that create and select for uh, the upper class are no longer scarce. Right, right. Uh, it, I don't know. It's not, on one hand, one of the abilities, you know, this kind of like word cell uh, reduction for lack of a better categorization, right? That's kind of, you know, a middle upper class. I think, I don't know, how many, how much money do, you know, journalists make, right? Not, not that much, but it's, it's a kind of like status, status aggregator, right? It's very good at conferring status to people who are basically social climbers. I don't know if it's that good at generating, you know, actual income. But yeah, this is getting democratized. And I agree with you that it's getting democratized. And to me, this is very interesting because, you know, the actual question here is basically, does the production, you know, this is like a very interesting economic question, basically, right? You're you're creating uh, a very, you're basically reducing the cost to near zero of the production of a certain style of content. But, and that reduction does two things, right? One, it makes it so that, you know, the probability of encountering that style of content is just much higher, right? So you're going to get a lot more of it. And, you know, to be honest, most of it is probably going to be from basically legacy perspectives, because that's what a lot of people who are interested in doing this already have. But it also democratizes that, right? It's simultaneously, by reducing the cost to zero, it simultaneously opens it up to people who don't have those opinions, who have like, uh, who have unorthodox opinions, uh, who would use the same kind of techniques, who can now put it in that kind of style, right? So you have these two forces that this introduces that are basically at tension in each other, right? And I think you're saying, you're saying that's the force that unearths new, more creative things is going to win, uh, I'm not sure if it's going to win, right? I'm not sure if that force is stronger versus, you know, the competing force of just volume, a volume of basically the traditional perspective. Uh, and I'd like to hear a, a stronger case for, for, but let's name these forces. Let's say, let's say, um, I don't think heterodox is quite the right word, but it's like, uh, it's good enough, right? Heretical. Heterodox versions of AI or like heterodox uses of uh, tech AI text generation versus orthodox versions. I think you think that the heterodox version is going to, is going to win. And I, yeah, I just want to hear like a, basically a stronger case for that. Um, well, first of all, these models become open source really rapidly. So that's the first point to make. Like there's GPT-J, which is a totally open source uh, version of GPT. And uh, you know, OpenAI has like a like a three to six month lead <laughs> on, on, on people getting access to this stuff. Um, the second thing is, once things are open source, you can fork it and do whatever you want. You could, you know, just like just like OpenAI is training their is is training their um, chatbot to have all these filters for racism and and wrong thought that you could have a version that has none of that in it built in. Um, and then the third thing is, you know, these models, at least in their current incarnation. They're they're sort of like the disembodied, uh, like language cortex. <laughs> you know, they're not. They're they're people are trying to uh, put 
you know, trying to get them to do everything and are surprised when they make up facts and stuff like that. But, you know, um, you know, if you're having a conversation on the phone and someone wishes you a happy birthday and you say, oh, happy birthday to you, too, by accident, because you're just sort of your 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 mind is just generating what you should say in response to that, even though it's your birthday, not their birthday. Um, you know, humans are clearly have a, have a kind of generative AI in, in them as well. And uh, but we have like our prefrontal cortex doing a lot of supervision, supervised learning so that when we when we're just uh, confabulating, we can stop ourselves and say, wait, wait, wait that, that didn't make sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Nate Silver had this tweet that was like, you know, a problem with AI is that it will say false things confidently. <laughs> and I just I just retweeted it and said, you know, chat GPT, make up a criticism of AI that applies exactly to humans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. this is this. So, and, you know, people, people and people are, aren't like it's incredible just the amount of like um, linear thinking that still still exists uh, where you know people think the chat GPT is like the pinnacle and we're just going to flatline after that rather than you know, this is just the beginning and the next, next models are going to be multimodal. They're going to be able to do text, video, audio. Uh, you know, they're going to have access to your, to your operating system. So they, you could tell it to, you know, mess with different programs. It'll have access to the internet. It will have, uh, you know, access to a calculator, access to a Python console. Um, so it doesn't have to be bad at basic arithmetic. It'll just, it'll just call the Python script. Um, <laughs> you know, there's these, these things are basically already possible and, and uh, they're being built. Um, and the reason OpenAI isn't doing it is because they're so so focused on the scale that they're sort of leaving a lot of these uh, intermediate uh, mezzanine sort of applications to other people. Um, right. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I think no. that yeah, it's a comparative yeah. advantage. Uh, yeah, but to exactly. Your, to your original question about you know, sort of steel manning the case that this is good for heterodoxy, I mean. It, it just you should start with the prior of like what is what is ortho, uh, you know what is orthodox opinion and how many people subscribe to it and if it really only represents like the interests and values of like ten percent of the public um you know these models will allow the ninety percent to put in whatever prompt they want um and you know step up their game and you know there's a there's a volume game here too where I don't know if you meant volume in terms of loudness or like or like quantity. I mean, like the, the size, <laughs> yeah, like the, the amount of stuff. Right. So you know, the reason the legacy media has more volume in the in the loudness sense uh, is because they control. You know, they have broadcast licenses and are in every airport. Um, in the in the quantity sense, they don't have to actually compete on quantity because they have privileged access to certain pipelines. Um, you know, what's already happening with the internet. And the stuff that Martin Gurry has written about is just this, this tsunami of information that has swept the world, you know, since the early 2000s, uh, where, you know, when he was at the CIA, he used to check Le Mans to find, figure out what's going on in France. And now, now, now that's just radically insufficient because there are a million bloggers and tweeters and everything else. Um, and if you just extrapolate from that, like that to me seems like it has been massively uh, a, a massive boon for for heterodox opinion and for um, anything that challenges challenges the incumbent. Um, and I think I think we can be safe in in thinking that this is a, a trend that's going to continue. Right. 
Uh, I think that, yeah, that's a quite strong case for it. Just looking at the same pattern on the, in the past. I'm not sure if you've seen this, you've seen this tweet. Uh, I just reshared an article, uh, by Mary Harrington that mentions this, but there's this tweet that says, you know, one way, like, in the, in the future, the way to inevitably prove you're human is, uh, is just to be racist because of the, uh, because of the <laughs> filters. Of course, this is not necessarily true because, uh, like you said, and I think, uh, I, and I agree with this, there's going to be much more decentralization. There's going to be much more availability of these models. Actually, a technical point that I think I should make for the audience, because, you know, there are some software engineers in my audience, but most people don't know this is that there's a huge asymmetry between the cost of training these models, basically calibrating them to do things, uh, especially like especially from scratch, and the cost of actually using them, right? So the cost of actually using them, what's called te- technically inference, right? But generally, you know, to generate these things, to basically run them is is very low, Right. Yeah, even you don't really even need specialized hardware for it, really. Like specialized hardware will help, especially if you're doing something that's uh, that does take in more data, like, say, like computer vision, self-driving. You know, you have sp- uh, specialized hardware for that certainly helps. But if it's just like text generation, from what I'm aware, like even just running that, you know, running that on your computer will not take will not take too long. And yes. Yeah, it, it is really like the training, getting the basically getting the calibration right for all of the pieces of this network. Right, you have uh, for the audience. I'm sure you already know this, but you have basically uh, a network structure, and then within that network structure, you have to calibrate uh, various parts of that structure by basically running training data through it. Right, by testing it on uh, on examples that are either generated by humans or generated by some other process, and that's how it figures out. Uh, figures out what to actually output. Now that takes an enormous amount of time, resources, money, and so on and so forth. But once that's done, it can be uh, distributed fairly easily. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think sort of similarly to how Elon Musk thought about Tesla and the debate around lidar, where you know he said, you know, his, his intuition Explain was what look, that is for the audience. Uh, well, when Tesla was developing, uh, well, all these companies competing to make the first autonomous vehicle uh companies like google were using a combination of vision like cameras and lidar and radar where lidar is a an expensive uh way of mapping the mapping a 360 view of the world around you using uh using essentially similar to radar um yeah and uh it's It's a a sensor system basically yeah it's a sensor system yeah and and Musk's intuition was well look like we have a a proof by example that um you know human drivers are just using the two eyes in their head right and uh and at some point we need to you know drop the crutch of the lidar and just train these models and solve for vision and and if humans can do it eventually the the AI will be able to do it too and i think i think that's a, a correct intuition even if his timelines are a little off um and at the end of the day like the brain in the brain produces, it consumes a lot of your energy, like 20% of your calories or something like that. But uh, the actual electrical, electrical activity in your brain is, is enough to power like a dim light bulb, right? And so we have another proof by example that intelligence can be incredibly compact and require very little energy. Um, the brain does this through sparsity, which is just a, a, a fancy way of saying that, you know, if there's 
100 billion parameters. It's not using, it's not activating every parameter uh, when it's doing a query. It, it's sort of economizing. And um, the next generation of AI models will have sparsity built in. I think GPT-4 is rumored to have a lot of sparsity built in. And there's people working on ways of taking sparsity to, to its limit, where rather than having to run these programs on your GPU, you could run it on your CPU. Or have a kind of bifurcated system where you have stuff that runs in your CPU and has a sort of access to the cache and short-term memory and is much faster. And then you have stuff that's run on the GPU that's a little bit slower. And then that starts to resemble the, the human mind, which has you know, short-term memory and long-term memory and things that, it were, that we have to be really quick about, like reacting to a, a, a lion jumping at us and things that we can be, we can take our time, like learning the piano. Um, uh, and so this is the way that things are trending. Like there, there, there will still be these gigantic models that, that has privileged access and it's relatively exclusive, but there will be very rapidly powerful tools that will fit on your, on your cell phone. Um, especially when these things get optimized or, or fine tuned around a particular thing, right? Like GPT, uh, the chatbot is, you know, consume the entire internet. Um, but GPT three is like, like I think 10 orders of magnitude bigger than chat GPT. And so, you know, ChatGPT is an incredible user experience and it's using uh, its parameters are a small fraction of the full model. Um, and that th these things will only get more re reduced and distilled uh, to the point where they could probably even fit on your like Apple watch. Right. And I think that when, when you're looking at basically when you're looking at parameters, this is also this is also like something that's maybe more specific to certain certain models. I've been kind of diving back into uh, into papers recently. I, I stopped in like 2018 when it was just you know the the volume became too high. Yeah, this is actually very funny. It's like a very good example of like amnesia. I, I think like most machine learning engineers have just like forgot this time period existed literally four years ago when you could kind of just read all of the machine learning papers, right? And know everything is going on down to like the level of statistical models. And yeah. you just can't do that anymore. No, no, I think there's like, I think archive the the ML page on archive is getting like a hundred submissions a day or something like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like you know, it's just like what is going on in like mathematics now, right? Okay, maybe not that big, but it's the same kind of deal. It's an entire field, and if if I'm going, I'm probably going on a, on a different podcast now, and I'm going to try to uh, explain some of this. And you know, I'm going to be you know, some of this is going to be explaining papers that I that I don't know, like, the specific, you know, methodology to, that I don't know, like, the specific calibration, what they did to, like, work through this stuff. And this is, like, very unfamiliar to me, right? This is going from sort of conceptualizing machine learning as a kind of, like, mathematical or statistical sort of practice or object to much more kind of engineering-based. But, you know, like, this is for obviously good reasons, you know, like, if you keep trying to do it in a purely you know, theoretical sense, you just won't be able to won't be able to accomplish these things so quickly. So I do think it's 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 on net a positive, but I do feel a little bit of nostalgia for this time period where you could just, you know, read all of the papers. Right. And this is where where like we're going to need AI tools to to augment our ability to read all those papers and and sort for what's relevant to what we're working on. Yeah, yeah. And 
so what's what's interesting about this? I think I'm I'm convinced by your case, but what's interesting about this is the kind of skills that allow you to succeed in the future ecosystem. This maybe gets a little bit to what we were talking, what you were talking about on a different podcast about uh, masculine versus feminine traits. I, I think that this is actually like kind of a rare take of mine, but I don't think that it's going to be a rare take in a few years. That AI is just going to absolutely destroy basically, you know, emotional work. Like mm-hmm. it, you already have these cases of. AI bots almost being like too good at therapy, right? People forming like parasocial relationships uh, with them. Yeah. Uh, have you ever read actually uh, either a bunch of books, very similar books, um, Eric Burns, Games People Play, uh, anything by Lacan really, or uh, or uh, Sadly Porn by The Last Psychiatrist. Have you read any of these books? I, I haven't read any reviews of these books. I know games people play, and I haven't read Lacan, but I've read more Zizek than I'm uh, than I'm uh, embarrassed to admit. But um, <laughs> and his last book, uh, Hegel in the Mind, was actually pretty decent. It was sort of on these uh, a Lacanian analysis of uh, AI and transhumanism that that was, uh, you know, like a lot of Slavia Zizek, sort of indecipherable and repetitive, but still interesting. Right, right. Uh, I actually have not read Zizek that much, but uh, yeah. But to, to, the I main mean, point. Sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, uh, uh, I had a post, uh, a piece back in like 2015 called "Disrupting Bureaucracy," where I likened, you know, what 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 do bureaucracies do? Um, I likened it to like an API, right? Like these are flushing nodes in a network that are, you know printing out PDFs to archive and then scanning the PDF <laughs> back into the computer, um, <laughs> yeah. double checking signatures, you know, clicking some boxes and, um, you know, using, uh, their, their, you know, context awareness and a little bit of judgment to add, add to augment like what can't just be proceduralized. Yeah. Um, to, to quote Richard Bruns on this podcast, you know, uh, I think it was something like bureaucracy is the is the original unaligned super intelligence. <laughs> well, maybe humans are right because, like, um, you know, it certainly seems like the really rapid uh, growth in human culture and society, like fifteen thousand years ago or so, um, you know, seems like it was some kind of tipping point in our in our intelligence that was like very parallel to some of the scaling laws that we're discovering with AI, where you scale it up big enough and is, is and and it generates like qualitatively different um, qualitatively different capabilities. So more is different. And, you know, this, this should have been obvious from anyone who's like familiar with a little bit of statistical mechanics that like, you know, the solid liquid to gas phase change, and then you have superfluids up in the right hand corner. Like these, these are all properties of statistical systems that uh, take on different, qualitative character when at different scales and it, it seems like a- ai is very similar where we where we took models that were around for like 40 years scaled them really big and got qualitatively different results like we've passed a kind of uh, phase transition um now to your point about 
so and then, but that raises the question like are there more phase transitions <laughs> right are, are there things beyond uh human level that um that get in that that are, will be as surprising as like superconductivity was um to the to the point about bureaucracies and and um female masculine traits you know i i don't think this is really uh gender loaded but like one thing is bureaucracies do select for is conscientiousness and being able to sit in, in a chair for eight hours a day and do your work and file it and everything be on time. Um, you know, that that's going to uh, be much less uh, selected for, um, you know, my own neuro, you know, atypical profile is like very ADHD. And, you know, one way to think of it, about ADHD is it's not, um, it's not, it's not really an intention, intention deficit. It's more like an executive function deficit where like, I will know that I have to send this email um, or, or pay this bill and I will be able to, you know, my, my inner internal monologue will be reciting Sam, you, you have to send that email. Um, but I'll like literally feel incapable of doing it. Um, where, meanwhile, like if I'm hyper fixated on something like Mormons or something like that, I'll sit down and write <laughs> 5,000 words. Um, and one of, one of the ways that I think AI, AI assistance could be really useful is, really filling the gaps in that, in those executive, uh, shortcomings that, that everyone has, um, the kind of classic Aristotelian separation between, you know, your desires and your actions and, and the limits of self-control. Um, and to the extent that that is, I, I don't know if that's completely gendered, but, um, you know, there's a lot of non-conscientious men with, with impulse behavior problems. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is, uh, you know, you could even see like the rise of like renewed interest in like combat sports or physical, a, a premium put on physical prowess and aggression. Um, because who cares if you have a few concussions, right? You have an intelligence backup system. Yeah. Uh, I think that, hmm. I mean, is what's happening there. Is what's happening there basically that, you know, I think that, like, human, the thing that really AI and, like, really, like, communications technology allows us to do is it allows us to, like, smooth, basically, it allows us to smooth out uncertainty, right? It allows us to smooth out losses. And what that really actually does in practice is really value, like, positive outliers, Right. That, that seems to definitely be the economic effect that's happened just in the past few years. Right. If it's very easy to base, like, if you just think of it in like a very oversimplified model where you have a bunch of stats, it's very easy to take like a very low stat and turn it into like a, like a middle, like an average stat. Right. If you have like a very low, for example, if you have very low writing ability, you know, you can use right. the chat GPT and, you know, at least get it to from what I've seen, like, uh, the 48th percentile which is not like amazing, right? But it is much better, much better than if you're below that. And you can, similarly with communications and technology in general, it's just really uh, reduced the price of collaboration, reduced the price of basically, um, basically reaching kind of like the quote unquote standard or basically, yeah, like the median, the, the close to the median value on any given one of these like stats, right? Right. And, and to your, to, to your original question about like heterodoxy, right? Like if you think about the classic midwit meme. Yeah. Yeah. Have, exactly. Where you have this bell curve and like 
the low IQ and the high IQ agree for this for different reasons, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the uh, the middle of the distribution will have more 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 of the what 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 today is the tail end. What today is the tail? Sorry, sorry. What what do you mean by that? Oh, the left side of the, the distribution will be pulled to the median. The left side of the distribution. You're saying you can take a bad writer and bring him to the 50th percentile. Right? Yeah, in terms of ability, yeah. I don't think that will necessarily be true in terms of like politics. Or, like, no, that's that, that's my point. But they'll, okay. they'll be they'll be in the middle of the bell curve for execution, but will be bringing their left tail opinions into the into the into the central tendency right yeah we're in agreement here we're in agreement here yeah i I think that is the case and i mean going back to like the religion point right i think really that what this will allow people to do is like organize on a substrate like have ideas that are not usually organized on a kind of like verbal or you know basically like communications technology substrate and have those things now able to access that right it's a very kind of like McLuhan-esque analysis. This is actually, I should I should register this. This will probably be coming out. This will be the first episode of the new year. You know, uh, the thing that I've been, I did this thread on Twitter that was like, or someone else did this thread on Twitter that was like, what, here are the things that I was most wrong about. And then I thought about it. Most of the things that I predicted about 2022 were like, not only correct, but like extremely correct. <laughs> Like in terms of the midterms, in terms of uh, in terms of the attempts to reform COVID bureaucracies, like all of the things that I care about the most was basically correct. But the thing that I was wrong about, okay, the thing that I was very wrong about was McLuhan, and part of this was just not reading enough McLuhan. But I've basically changed my mind. I think that his analysis is much more important and much more really like much more practical than my first interpretation and this is one example where basically like the substrate allowing basically you know people yeah people who are not you know trained in the kind of like quote-unquote journalism catechism not trained in those like styles to have access to these technologies i think will be very generally positive and will be basically something that doesn't quite impose discipline but it really re- imposes like a kind of etiquette. I think that's a good mm-hmm. word. It imposes a kind of etiquette on communities such as the right-wing journalism community that I think are, you know, are necessary and, and are going to be net positive for them. Yeah. I mean, totally. It, it's, it, it confuses me why, you know, for example, um, at least in recent history, right-wing news sites look like they're like from the night built in the nineties. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. No, it's because the readers are all boomers. Like right, have, you, right. have you read Hanania's post on this, right? Like the scam, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of grift, but there's also, yeah, it's like facility with these tools where you get like these emails that are like in with five different fonts and different font <laughs> sizes. Um, yeah. Uh, where, whereas the left has, you know, Jacobin with, or Jacobin with, um, you know, super, amazing like graphic design and everything is stylized and so i think there will be a compression where people were like these aesthetic markers of uh, uh well these aesthetic markers will be more generally accessible so you won't be able to use those to infer about someone's politics or whatever um when it comes to McLuhan, 
you know, the kind of medium is the message stuff. I, I totally agree with, with that. You know, he, he sort of fits within this tradition of Canadian idealism. Um, that, in, that includes like George Grant and uh, McPherson, Charles Taylor. And they, and, um, you know, in the case of George Grant, Grant's famous book was, was uh, lament of a nation where, which was sort of this Canadian nationalist, uh, manifesto that lamented the dominating cultural influence of, of America as, as our, as our Southern neighbor and <laughs> worried that, you know, America's culture would be so dominating, so hegemonic that it would swamp Canadian culture and we'll lose our distinctive distinctiveness and our particularity. And that, that, that's what inspired a lot of what Canada has done, uh, you know, around, you know, requ- requiring radio stations to play a certain number of Canadian songs um, or, uh, you know, investing in um, original uh, film and video. Um, and and that's why, you know, we have, you know, Justin Bieber and Drake and all these people who have come out of Canada because we give them, we basically have like an infant industry policy for them. Um, but that has like totally started to break down, right? Because who listens to the radio anymore? <laughs> and, uh, and everyone is like streaming on Netflix and so on. Um, and so like in recent years, Trudeau and his government have been pushing for you know, trying to get the streaming services to adopt some of these similar content requirements. And it's just like a totally thankless effort, right? Because, okay, it, it, maybe you get one of these companies to start showing more Canadian content, but people, YouTube is open to everybody, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and um, but at the same time, like in some ways, the, the, the grant critique may be, may be anachronistic at this point because, you know, for all the same reasons we were talking about sort of the mid 20th century, high modernist era of mass production, mass, mass culture. Like we, we could be just leading right into a world of, uh, mass, mass diversification around culture. And in that case, you don't need to have legal barriers and content requirements. Um, there people will form sort of epistemic communities and not have to, you know, watch American reality TV because it's the only thing that's on. Yeah, yeah. So one, I mean, that's very funny. The like the Canadian content, you know, the the Canadian content policies of, and, and I should you know say for my viewers, there's been a kind of like riling up around this with regards to, uh, with regards to Trudeau, with regards to Bill C11, which I do think is quite an awful law but this is kind of like how canadian canadian media has been regulated both by conservatives and by liberals for really really for like many many decades if not i don't know how long has this been right uh but really at least for decades and yeah there is this basically kind of paranoia and you know maybe not necessarily incorrect paranoia that if you allow american media to compete at a level playing field just no one will be interested in, in, in Canadian content. And like, I think, uh, do you know, like the columnist slash YouTuber, JJ McCullough? Yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Why is that unfortunate? I find him a little insufferable. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. I kind of like his analysis. Like a kind of, I actually don't read his Washington Post columns, but like the, the, the YouTube, the YouTube videos he does about Canadian culture, I find, I find quite good. Um, but yeah, he talks about, he talks about, 
you know, this kind of idea that Canadian content will just be subsumed. And on YouTube, that doesn't seem to be the case. And he mentions like Linus Tech Tips, right? Who is Canadian, yeah. who I didn't yeah. know was Canadian, right? But it's like, yeah, there's Canadian XQC. culture around <laughs> basically, yeah, like people who are making, who are making their own, uh, their own either hardware or software, uh, modifications like that's that's interesting right and that's and that's actually that is a kind of canadian culture i think I, i'm i was like somewhat involved in like canadian or like torontonian specifically hardware scene and yeah like there's a there is a distinctive kind of canadian or torontonian culture around you know making computer hardware and that's not what you ex- would expect right but it's there and and it's it, it's it really is quite great and but this is the this is really yeah. the trend I'm extrapolating from, right? Because like some someone like XQC, just this random Quebecois Twitch streamer, he's like the biggest Twitch streamer in the world. Um, you know, he eventually moved to Austin for tax reasons, I assume. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> yeah. but um, you know, the internet really leveled the leveled the playing field. And when you're in like, you know, Hamilton, Ontario, or something like that, like what 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 else is there to do other than make YouTube videos <laughs> and stream on <laughs> Twitch? Um, uh, and and so I, I I'm much more bullish on on particularity making a comeback right and so so in some ways like i i reject the teal crypto versus libertarian dichotomy because i think i think you mean um, ai versus libertarian or like ai versus crypto or like yeah yeah. libertarian versus communist um you know i i think that ai will it will be libertarian in some ways but i think it'll more than anything be communitarian hmm interesting Like take the uh, education example, right? Like um, we yep. saw with uh, the uh, ma- you know rapid adoption of remote remote learning and so forth, and school schools being closed. That in, in, in the U.S. there was an increase in homeschooling of like two million kids, right? Um, a lot of parents realized that um, you know first they were cynical about the education their kids were receiving in the first place, but then one, once the kid is stuck at home and doing online coursework anyway, you may as well take matters into your own hands. Um, and then they figure out, well, this is actually fun. It's easier than I thought. Uh, there's a whole community around this. We can pool our resources and the kids still get a social life and so on. And I take that to the next level where you have an AI tutor that, you know, looks like Miss Frizzle. It's, it's a fully, <laughs> fully real time, you know, avatar that talks with you, remembers your name, knows, knows your habits, you knows is like listening for any kind of cue that would improve its algorithm. So you learn math faster or whatever. And kids just get so engaged with it that they spend like nine hours a day just like grinding problem sets but without realizing it. Um, and everyone like maxes out what's possible through like nurture. Um, but it's something that is, you know, anyone could install or on their browser, right? And then you have, you know, a potential mass exodus from the public education system. But there's still these things that the education system provides like classmates and socialization and fun activities. And so why not reform those institutions around an intentional community, a community of like-minded peers or a chess club or, you know, a, a gymnastics school or, or whatever the thing is um, that supplements the academics that your kids are, are getting uh, through the AI. Uh, and so that, 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 that to me as a model of how other industries and sectors could be affected is, is, uh, is long for more communitarianism because pe- people don't want to be atomized you know, Robin, Robinson Crusoe is like on their island. They want to belong to ethical communities. And I think a lot of the malaise that modernity created, and this is also a, 
a kind of Canadian idealist point, like the Taylor Taylorian point, was produced by this kind of middle transaction cost period where, you know, mass production mm. and scale uh, was both homogenizing and also atomizing. And people are, have a longing to get back into like robust ethical communities. And the issue has been there's not been a, a sort of functional role for those communities. And Do people have a longing to get into like I, I don't know a lot of people who are like, I really want to get into an ethical community. Like that's not really something that I hear a lot of people saying, you know. Maybe well, on like the conservative, you know, maybe on like, <laughs> you know, conservative post liberal Twitter a lot of people are saying that. But like in terms of like, I don't the think they say people, it self consciously, but you know, people want to belong to groups. We're we're groupish social animals. We want to be part of we want to be at the DSA meeting. Um we want to huh? we can't <laughs> not you, obviously not you, but you're you're part of a community. You're part of this community of you know, sort of Tyler Cowan adjacent, free thinking, uh, you know, new right type of people, and that's a community, right? And and those communities are better when they're talking with each other, when they're you know, at, when they're at meetups, when they're um, at events, and. Um, no, I, I'm not saying like people won't want to join communities. I'm I'm skeptical that people want to join ethical communities, right? Like to I'm using me, it as a term of art. I'm using it as a term of okay, art for okay. like a, some kind of shared normative commitments. And um, okay, but, and maybe but like, the, going back to this religion point, right? I think the kind of like atomization or like the reduction of judgment is going to continue, right? I think the revealed preferences of people is that they're very afraid to be judged. They're very afraid of being held to standards. And that that's going to continue, you know, so like more, you know, anonymous or like more pseudonymous, you know, Twitter groups, less, less people going to church, I think is going to be the future. Um, we can expand more on that if you want. Yeah, I agree. Less people going to like old church, qua church, the way it's existed um, historically. But, you know, people, you know, it. So many people, so, so many of our life decisions, like I moved from Canada to, to DC because, you know, A, there wasn't opportunities for me in, in independent policy analysis in Canada because we have like an, uh, you know, an effective government. <laughs> um, and, and B, because, you know, DC and other places like San Francisco, New York, like there, there are places for people who are intellectually curious and, you know, want to change the world or whatever, like to, to their shelling points for people to, to meet, um, and live, live around. And, and so there, there will be forces that decentralize that on some level, but there will also be new opportunities to new shelling points that emerge. And that's, that's really all I'm saying, but the shelling points will be different. And to the extent that the existing shelling points, like say public education have a, you know, a kind of a tent pole that people are sort of forced by dint of our current economic cost structure to, to coalesce around. You know those those temples could collapse and new temples be be uh, erected. Yeah, the, uh, as Balaji says, you have a lot of constants becoming variables, right? And I think yeah, I think that is an effective AI for sure. Uh, I think that we've been kind of dancing around that uh, you write about in your articles is the horseless carriage uh, fallacy. Can you can you explain that just the idea in general and you know maybe give some ex examples of those types of critiques or not critiques necessarily but those types of horseless carriage projections that we're <laughs> seeing bad takes that we're seeing in the present day yeah i mean the, uh, it refers to just you know, when when the original automobiles were being first motorized motorized vehicles were being developed people would call them horseless carriages because because their their base model was a, a carriage pulling 
you know, a cart with people sitting in the back. And so if you replace the horse with a motor, you get a horse's carriage. But of course we don't, but of course the car, the automobile replaced more than just carriage rides, right? It like changed everything because suddenly, you know, there were these mass economies of scale that could be built by through an interstate highway system. Uh, you know, you needed new regulatory agencies like the National Highway and Traffic Safety uh, Authority. Um, you know, everything changed because of the car. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, geographical barriers collapsed. Suddenly you had like large, large e- economic sort of commuting areas and so forth. Um, and that, and this is a, a common fallacy, especially in any kind of disruptive technology that people bring into things is they, they approach it through a kind of comparative statics, like hold everything constant and change one thing and what happens rather than seeing how there are gen- general, general equilibrium effects that could alter everything, especially institutions. So, you know, right now on my Facebook, um, you know, all my professor friends are freaking out because, you know, their students are submitting essays written by a chat. <laughs> um, and yes, yeah, so on a comparative statics basis, if all you do, if you hold everything constant and just change one thing, namely the ability to generate essays for zero cost, um, this seems like a disaster. But, uh, you know, maybe we need to re- rethink our uh, approach to evaluating students altogether and maybe even re- rethink our what, what, what education is for, right? Because if, uh, you know, if Google and Wikipedia have really reduced the need to, like, memorize a bunch of facts and have a, a huge knowledge base you know it still helps but you know if this changes everything then maybe education should reform around you know building facility of these tools um and rather than try to resist it just like you know in 2008 my high school teacher was like resi- telling everyone never to quote wikipedia because it was full of errors <laughs> and anyone could anyone could edit it you know, eventually people came around. It was like, well, well actually, you know, there's mistakes on Wikipedia now and then, but it's still a really amazing. I mean, really Wikipedia amazing. is bad now for the opposite reason, <laughs> yeah. which is funny enough. <laughs> Wikipedia is kind of, uh, you know, it's it's very bad for referencing controversial issues because they will only defer to basically like established institutions. They'll only defer to like the New York Times, which has like very correlated errors on certain issues. Yeah, that's a nice way to say it. Um. Yeah, so the so the horse's courage fallacy is just it's just that you know satiris imperibus. Not everything is all constant. In fact, everything is variable, um, and so you have to be really conscious of how you know changing cost structure will not just affect the particular good or service, but potentially restructure the market altogether. Right, right. That's a very good way to. to... To phrase it, you know, it's not it's not just you know the players of the game getting better. The game is itself is different. Um, right. The the other example I use is like the mobile phone and and smartphones and, inter- and the uh, the internet. Like circa two thousand, no one was having internet safety discussion discussions about like how in a decade the internet was going to you know cause the Arab Spring and a crisis of authority across Western democracies and um and uh, and no you know. No one was, people were analyzing the mobile phone, like vis-a-vis landlines. Like how, how is the mobile phone going to disrupt, you know, Comcast and, uh, his, their, their landline monopoly or whatever. Um, and that was just like, you know, it did do that. Obviously I haven't used a landline in years, but that's like just the tip of the iceberg. It mobile changed everything. And then now it's, now it's sort of, you know, AI is in some ways just a, an extension of the mobile revolution. Yeah. Uh, 
I actually want to, I don't know, this is more of my take. I talked about it a little bit with Michael Gibson, but I do want to bounce it off of you as well. I think I mentioned this a little bit, uh, but I really do think a lot of the kind of like, I mean, you, you also agree with parts of it, right? With regards to teaching, but that a lot of the kind of like interpersonal work is actually going to be the work that's earlier, uh, automated by AI instead of later. I think that, you know, just like the human baseline of those activities, right, is just so low that if you can basically capture, right, I think like with the current technology, right, it's not requires, a, it doesn't require AGI, it doesn't require like a step change, just with the current technology, if you are able to capture basically the mannerisms and the style and the techniques of like the top, you know, 5% of teachers, and then just democratize that, right, that will be better than like, even if there's some loss on it, right? If you if you capture those mannerisms and there's some kind of loss, there's some things that the AI doesn't manage to quite pick up, right? I still think that will be better than like 80% of teachers very easily. Right. And yeah, and, and, the, and this this is why it's useful to study, you know, the past. Like I mentioned at the top of the, the discussion, yeah. talking about like my work on, on religion, where, you know, if, if religion is the kind of proto-social insurance that, you know, bet, that bundles all this other stuff, but then suddenly there's like a cradle degree of welfare state and social workers who will help you instead. Um, like the functional role, even if there's other things that religion is doing, the functional role has been uh, replaced or substituted for. And so the whole, the whole, the whole bundle of goods around salvation and community and everything else unravels. Right. Um, and the same is, same is true in education where, you know, one of the functions of education, of, K-12 education is just daycare. So parents can go to work and, you know, the, you know, remote schooling and, and the rise of, uh, you know, work from home and so forth has enabled people to move in the homeschooling direction. But uh, uh, an AI chat, an AI tutor that is like the top 10 percentile of teachers, you know, they're, that, that will in a similar way substitute for the thing that's the functional thing that is keeping people congregating in the classroom. And even though there's all these other bundles of things that go along with education, just above and beyond the actual human capital piece, um, those things can unbundle and will, will rebundle around different things. Like I, like I was saying, like, you know, and that's why religion could, we could be long religion in a, in a broad sense. I'm not saying like people are all going to become like Presbyterians again or something like that, but people, people will, are we getting that Mormon integralism? Well, this, that, that's why the Mormons are so interesting to study because right. they were the exception to the rule. They, they lived through, you know, Joseph Smith modeled the, the church structure off the Freemasons and the Freemasons are like a relic now. Like they're like a bunch of old people doing handshakes. And, um, but the more, the Mormon church, it survived, you know, this, the, all these other mutual aid societies were basically being co- collapsing around them between commercial insurance and the welfare state. And yet they survived and they did that by building this really incredible sort of adaptive, but decentralized, uh, institutional structure. Wait, how is it decentralized? There's like, you know, there's the, I forget what he's called, you know, but there's the guy who is in charge of, is it like the head priest? Yeah. They have a charge of the entire Mormon church, right? It's, it's much more like monarchical. It's both and right. And, and this is, this is why centralization, decentralization isn't just unidimensional. Um, you know, the church, the Mormon church, the LDS church, as they prefer to be called, has a, a hierarchical priesthood structure, but it's also incredibly decentralized. They have, they have, um, 
individual temples belong to wards, which belong to stakes, which belong to you know higher levels of jurisdiction. So it's incredibly, you could say more federalist, if anything. Um, the churches themselves are presided over by lay bishops. It's their volunteer ministries. Um, you know, if you want to get referred to any other social services, the bishop has the total discretion to refer you. You don't even have to be Mormon. You just have to ask. Um, you know, they have these bishop storehouses where they have tons of foodstuffs and, and every Mormon's supposed to have like 90 days of, of, uh, of, uh, of canned goods and stuff like that. <laughs> like they're, they're like the prepper religion. Um, <laughs> so it's both, it's both decentralized and, and centralized. So the, so the actual operations of the church are, you know, very federated, but then they also have higher up the stack, you know, revenue sharing, like all the tithes, people donate 10% of their income to the church. And then those tithes are distributed to the different wards and stakes in an equ equitable way so they can fulfill their, their different missions. And then they have this guy at the top, the presiding prophet who also sort of brings with it like the kind of monar monarchical ad adaptability of like break glass in case of emergency, right? They're not, they're not stuck on any dogma because if suddenly, you know, things aren't working, um, you can just have a revelation <laughs> and, <laughs> and reorient the church to, to the new reality. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's, it is almost kind of like, uh, it, yeah, in, in the kind of like Yarvinian sense, you know, in the style of Curtis Yarvin, it is a kind of like a startup, startup company or like a kind of company orientation to decision making, right? Yeah, but they're not they're not sitting there micromanaging, right? They're not um, the Yarvin. Right, right, yeah, just, just like a company, you're not you're you know like the CEO does not decide you know decide what's the individual employees are doing like the lower level employees are doing right he does not you know micromanage them yeah it's below yeah. his pay grade and but but the, it's different than the kind of neo-corporate feudalist system that yarvin prefers right because you know that is you know the, the the state as a corporation a joint stock corporation whereas the mormon church is much more like uh, a, bu a bunch of nested you know worker co-ops <laughs> <laughs> it's very okay, it's very cooperative and very mutualist in a way that um you know shanghai feudalism isn't okay uh i i i kind of get the difference now okay yeah that's quite interesting um so you have basically yeah you have this will to cooperate this will to cooperate in ways that even in ways that demand kind of material investments um is that true across the board Right. Is that true? You know, I think that there's definitely that will to cooperate materially with regards to Mormons. Is there that will in the broader population? Well, you need to get the right set of selection effects running, right? So people of similar, of, of similar um, spirit are con congregating together, right? Like it's hard right. to get Democrats and Republicans, like partisans to cooperate on anything. Um, but, uh, to the extent, you know, the internet has made it phenomenally easier to find people with like minds and match with them. And the, but the, but so far it's been relatively virtual. It's over this like internet digital substrate where, we're, where you're in Canada, I'm in, I'm in the States and we're able to connect virtually. But, you know, what, what about a world where the reasons why you're situated in one place, I'm situated in another place go away and we're able to coordinate again in, in person. Um, and there, I think there will be things that will need to be coordinated around. 
you know, one of the big ones could be, you know, personal protection and security. Right. Um, because there will be all, you know, giving it everybody the, the abilities of a CIA agent uh, has a lot of risks associated with it. <laughs> and, um, and, but, but so does allowing the state to build a big, you know, surveillance panopticon. Um, and so I think the middle ground will be, you know, in communities that form opt in and offer a suite of, of, you know, AI amenities, including public order where you volunteer away your privacy in a, in a rule bound way. Um, uh, and there could be other public goods too. Like if, if, you know, cities uh, are, well, I am still long cities because there's going to be a lot of, uh, tools that and public goods that are going to be AI powered that will only make sense with a large agglomeration of people. Just like today, uh, I have access to Uber and DoorDash and, and two day delivery, um, by dint of living in a, a big metro area. Yeah. I'm so long cities. Like, do you know, um, like this has been one of the takes me, this is maybe my hottest takes is that, you know, residential housing prices are probably underrated. Oh, absolutely. I mean, going back yeah. to Henry George, like solve for the equilibrium. If we have, yeah. if we have abundance in all goods and services, the only things that will, the like all value will flow to the scarce factors of production. So it's going to be like GPUs, rare earth metals and land. Yeah. Uh, oh, is this, uh, do you think energy is also going to be much extremely yeah, cheap? Yeah, energy. Uh, well, it's too, too early to say, but you know, energy will also be a big one. You know, even if we have like okay. unlimited, <laughs> unlimited fusion energy, um, you know, there, there's still a potential world where demand for compute outstrips seemingly limit, limitless supply. Um, but yeah, energy is obviously the other big factor. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So, so yeah, I think we agree on a lot of, like a lot of this. I was expecting much more, much more disagreement and just, you know, I got a lot of agreement from this conversation. This is, yeah, this is unexpected, but I think not necessarily bad. Okay. No, it's Omen's agreement theorem. We're rational. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So how is, how is AI going to change bureaucracy? Uh, And we can start with government bureaucracy and then expand out if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, when I wrote that disrupting bureaucracy piece, I was astounded to learn that there's a mine and a, uh, an abandoned mine in Pennsylvania that's owned by the social security administration. And they've converted, they've converted the mine into an office and every day busloads of people go down the mine shaft <laughs> into their cubicles. And all they do all day is file and refile social security documents um, into physical archives. Um, and it's in a mine in part because it's shielded from radiation. It's like underground. Um, but it's still like this just insane thing. Like why, (laughs) why are we doing this? Not healthy. No. Um, and the U S in particular has just a ton of this sort of legacy technical debt in our, in our bureaucracies where, you know, take social security numbers. It's like a nine digit, uh, number invented in 1935. You know, it's not like a, it's not like a 64 character cryptographically secured public key or, or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, our, uh, IRS individual master file, which is, which includes like all, basically all IRS tax records, um, is coded in assembly and it dates from like 1966 or something like that. Um, 
you know, there's been efforts made to try to transition it <laughs> onto, onto um, a more modern programming language. Um, in one case, this happened in like 2018 or 2019, the lead software engineer that was in charge of migrating the IRS master file to Java uh, uh, had his employment contract inadvertently expire. Um, and the commissioner didn't do anything to get him reinstated. And so now he like went to work somewhere else. And so that whole project got paused <laughs> um, or take unemployment insurance. I think it's a useful, useful thing to look at just, you know, both because it's like our safety net for, for people dislocated from work. So if there's going to be a big labor market disruption, it'd be nice if it was working well. Um, you know, that we have 50 different UI programs. They're all, all written in COBOL or Fortran. Uh, when the pandemic hit, there was a need to you know bolster those programs, but there weren't enough COBOL programmers on earth to do it. Um, so they just, they just tacked on $600 to everyone's weekly, weekly check. And it was like, you know, a source of $150 billion in, in fraud. Um, you know, these systems are right now they're bending. And the question is, if you move into a world where like all the through where, where you're pushing like a, five orders of magnitude, 10 orders of magnitude, more throughput through these systems. Do they, do they continue to bend or do they break? Um, you know, some of the thought experience that I've, I've been working on is, or thinking about is like, you know, the notice and comment period for new regulations. Right. Under have you the, seen this? Uh, have you ever seen this app? Do not pay. Oh, it sounds familiar. Yeah. So it's basically this app that automatically challenges that the files like <laughs> legal challenges to speeding tickets. Yeah. So a lot of my thinking on this and my, uh, was sort of kicked off by Charles Murray, who who uh, wrote this little monograph a few years ago, I think 2014 or so. Um, I think it's called We the People. And it proposed the creation of a libertarian legal defense fund uh, called the Madison Fund. And his proposal was, you know, he was he, he was mad because like the city bylaws, uh, you know, he got, he got caught up in the city bylaws because his fence was like an inch too high or something like that. Um, and so he proposed using this Madison fund that like some rich people would capitalize to just file frivolous lawsuits against every single like nitpicky legal complaint until the, until, until the system jams up and people are free to, to build fences as high as they want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I think that's actually a a pretty antisocial political strategy, but I also think it's like what will be, it's what we're in store for without any conniving. Like the, the, these, these tools are going to be massively available um, where any, you know, anyone who has a speeding ticket will be able to challenge it with their AI, AI paralegal, um, you right. know, notice and comments, you know, when, the, when the federal government is supposed to make a new regulation, they're supposed to open it up to public comment. And by law, they have to respond to anything that's, relevant they can they can respond to it in batch uh but if you have millions of public comments that are written by ai that are indistinguishable from human and they all are unique and relevant um it's going to require at the very least building countervailing technologies (laughs) right Um, you have the bots you have the bots automatically respond to the automatically generated comments yeah right um so you know just just multiply that across the uh, lawsuits across FOIA requests across IRS uh, tax filings, you know, every one of these you know, UI claims, whatever, every, every one of these systems is a, is a vector for potential exploit, uh, an exploitative attack. Um, and, you know, we're not even 
having talked about like you know the power grid or 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 or, or these other uh, infrastructure uh players how is systems. the power grid exp- uh, affected by this well there was that um that ransomware attack last year or the year before uh you know i i just think that every you know when i was a kid i had a lot of fun like making little batch files bat files with like little hacks in them you know <laughs> you know for like ddosing or uh you know make the uh make the program uh you know reboot the computer but then make the make the icon look like the firefox browser or something like that. like these shitty little pranks that i would pull um but i was an idiot who didn't know how to code you know it you know if you can just type into uh your code assistant you know write me stuck write me a stuck next program <laughs> Or something like that. Um, then, uh, you know, there's a, then suddenly there's a lot of systems vulnerabilities. Um, you know, everything becomes hackable, and uh, and the U.S. government's approach to this so far is to just like fund some scholarships for cybersecurity programs. Wait, is this actually true though? Like, if there were so many kind of like you know, basically day one exploits, like, I mean, are we talking about like with basically like, you know, specific? Or like very weak AI, or are we talking like much more sophisticated AI? Because I think like the, the kind of like low level exploits, you know, the kind of risk reward is so high there that I think if there was much more, you know, if if there were many more such vulnerabilities, then you know there would be a lot of people finding them, right? Yeah, people do find them. The I think the issue is that um, there's enough of a barrier to entry um, that and and that and that the your knowledge of programming and so forth that you need to have um, also selects away a lot of the crazy. Um, uh, but the, I mean, this is a general sort of like sociological insight. Like there, there should, there's way less crime than you'd expect <laughs> at any point in time, because like the police are always, you know, could always be overwhelmed if everyone just committed crime simultaneously. Um, uh, so I guess my main claim is that these barriers to entry are, are slowly falling and um and yeah there will be the supercharged version of like more advanced ai but even today you know there's a i think back to this uh i think defcon 2018 maybe an earlier defcon uh, there's a talk that this guy gave um that i can look up and share the link with you uh uh it was a talk about how to hack uh birth and death death certificate registries um and he walked through, uh, he was an Australian gentleman. He walked through how he, uh, you know, gave, he hacked the birth registry and like gave birth to <laughs> a bunch of people that didn't exist. And then he hacked the, the death, death registry and like killed his, like, you know, quote unquote killed his boss. And like, or, or, or and he even said like, Oh, if you ever get caught just, and you get assigned a, a judge, just kill your judge. And <laughs> not literally, but like make them legally dead. Uh, because uh, a legally dead judge can't make a ruling. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the upshot of the, the talk was like, all these systems are incredibly insecure. And, you know, there are probably are people that are exploiting them as we speak. It's just, uh, there's a barrier to entry and there, there also has to be a will. There has to be a motive. Um, but there's an awful lot of, you know, chaos agents in society that, that will have access to tools that right now have a learning curve. Right. So. Wait, so do you think that 
these AI technologies are mostly going to be influencing bureaucracies from being used from the outside? Like, what do you think the in- internal impact? Do you think there is going to be any internal impact, right? Uh, and what do you think that's going to look like? I mean, you can look at a country like Estonia and see that, you know, given current existing technology, the public sector could be much smaller, at least the, the employee f- footprint um, with, with better systems and automation and distributed um, distributed, distributed databases and so forth and cryptographically secured everything. Um, the fact that we aren't there is largely because of path dependency. And, right. um, you know, there's, path, you know, path dependency means that we have like, shittier payments than you know some parts of africa because they just leave <laughs> right but at some right. point if the disjunct between what's possible and what what you have is so great um and especially if if it's if like the u.s government is, a, is fun- functionally being ddosed by like all, all this other uh, uh uh all this nonsense then i think there i think at some point you know Congress convenes a session and they're like, holy shit, like everything is breaking. We haven't collected tax revenue in, t- in three years. <laughs> um, we really need to like set aside our differences and reset the system. Um, and it will be ad hoc at first. Um, but you know that, that the, the, the alternative is that no one, no one addresses these issues and you just have system failure. I mean, that is the alternative. I'm not sure if that's like, an unlikely alternative. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm not making a prediction. I'm just, I'm just saying that, um, AI will be a forcing function to broad based institutional reform. Um, but the question it, it's, it's not guaranteed to result in like the right reforms. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Or, or it's, not, it's also not guaranteed to be, it's, it's not guaranteed to be, you know, come soon enough. Right. Like, you know, ideally we'd have these systems in place before the wave, um, you know, you'd, you'd much rather build a moat around your house before a tsunami than, than have to like scramble and put together Noah's Ark, you know, once the, after the flood is already hit. Right. Okay. I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to say something else. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I actually talked to, uh, Hanania about this or not in the podcast. I think I, I, I like talked about in uh, in a blog comment on one of his posts, but really like the big question is right. Like it's, it's very clear that like not only can it be replaced with future technologies, but a lot of basically bureaucratic jobs can be like completely replaced with existing technology. Uh, But uh, the question is like, to what extent those, those jobs are like kind of fake, right? To what extent those jobs are like basically there for like coalitional and political reasons and not for like actually doing anything useful, right? And that that's really going to be the determiner to see like whether whether those jobs are replaced or not. Yeah, I mean, there's already an overhang. There's, we, there's already a lot of Deadwood that I think anyone knows, anyone who studied it knows like those, there could be massive downsizing and, and uh, quality if anything might improve. Um, but but the issue is also one of um, opacity, right? Like, you, you know that there's like 20% of the people in any company are doing 80% of the work, but it's hard to know who those people are. And, you know, tools steadily de- developed for basically price discrimination where, um, you know, you could tell who who was the high risk driver, who was the low risk driver and give them different insurance policies. You could find, 
know, the Ezra Klein was the super productive wonk blog writer and, and, you know, all the other old, old hats uh, weren't, weren't contributing clicks. And so, but at some point Ezra Klein is like, well, why am I cross subsidizing all these losers? I should just go start, <laughs> start my own media site. Right. Right. Um, so I think there, I think one, one of the, one of the things will be a kind of revelation of who's contributing what in a way that's undeniable. Um, but the other, the other thing is like, given all this volume, we'll have to build AI tools to accommodate it. And so in some ways we'll have to build a parallel system that renders the legacy system obsolete. And I don't think, I just don't think that like we're going to have like Japanese style banishment rooms where people just sit in the basement twiddling their fingers. <laughs> um, you know, I think at some point you have like a DeSantis or somebody come in and say, let's just, let's just fire them. They're not doing anything. Yeah. It, I think that that is like pretty remarkable that basically it's, it's funny, right? Because I don't think it changes the fact like not only are they like kind of replaceable with like newly invented technologies, but they've kind of been like replaceable for a long time to, to talk about some of your examples, like the, like the mine shaft, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like, but there is a kind of distinction that gets raised when it becomes this obvious, right? There, there's a kind of, to go back to our conversation about differences in uh, degree becoming differences in kind, right? I do think the political incentives are warped once you realize, or like once it's let's just like so obvious to like everyone in the public that this is make work, right? That to take an extreme example, you know, like the Californian government, like at the very least, half of it does not need to exist at all. That it's just basically like, you know, doling out money to to subsidize voters and activists for the Democratic Party, right? Like to the extent that that, be, that kind of like basically corruption and patronage becomes so obvious, becomes just like completely indefensible. Uh, I, I'm more optimistic that that will create a political impact than than Richard is. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. How, how much do you think that's going to change the political incentives and make oh, it? I think it's going to be massive in part because okay. we, have the, we have laboratories democracy and we also have other nation states to compare ourselves to. And, right. um, you know, if Texas like goes whole hog on this stuff, um, you know, they could have, a, they could build all this state capacity that like, and then Californians will, will continue to move there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, to take the, to take like the counterpoint to this, right. It's not like you require, you require like super high tech to look at like the low productivity of certain government workers, right. You can tell that like, you, you could tell that like 20 years ago or like much more, much, much further in the past than that. Right. But these people still don't get fired. So, so that's like the right. counter argument to that. But I, I don't know. My actual position is still very much that there is a kind of difference in kind when it becomes this obvious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, you know, California, parts of California are, still have rolling blackouts or brownouts. Um, you know, there's, there's humans are amazing, amazingly like hedonically adaptive, you know, um, if we, we, we can adapt pretty quickly to, uh, to decadence and you know that that's the real danger but you know to the extent that this accelerates things to such a degree that uh you know hedonic ad adaptation doesn't kick in <laughs> and your, your power is just off <laughs> all the time <laughs> um you know i really do, do think it will force uh broader structural reforms and a lot of the structural reforms are are being prevented right now because of different kind of 
wicked problems, different coalitional dynamics, um, you know, uh, unclear jurisdiction at times. Um, but those become sol- those become, you know, uh, surmountable problems when there's enough of a uh, when there's not enough of an obvious need to uh, coordinate at a system level. Right, right. Like once again, to give to give like this the the devil is due, right? Um, in the case of somewhere like California, I think like the best example is somewhere like California. Even like the federal, it, it's like kind of funny. The federal government is actually less good of an example there because I think the competitive pressures there are actually stronger. But somewhere like California, you know. <sighs> You basically, you basically don't live in any kind of rational democracy, right? There's just like so much media, media pressure and like so much, basically, you know, like, man, this is why I don't like going to California. <laughs> my friends asked why I didn't go to like the EA conference in California. My answer was literally like, I just hate Californians, right? <laughs> There's so much, like, I, I have this like quote. That sometimes gets quoted out of context, which is like people don't have desire or like people don't have beliefs. They only have reactions. Right. But like the kind of like caricature version of that, I think might actually be true about Californians. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like, and like you know, pro- you know, team. like there, there, there are verified people on both sides. I'm sure there are all, there are some Californians who are all right. Um, right. But I mean, but, look, look at, look at like San Francisco, right? They're yeah, they just exactly, posted exactly. enormous, enormous revenue losses um, because their, their tax structure was so top heavy. Um, you know, there was this case a few years ago of this, like a single wealthy individual in New Jersey moving to Florida and putting them into budget deficit. <laughs> that's um, great that's great that, that is kind of, you know, that is kind of like straight out of Rand, right? That's kind of, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, right. And so, you know, at some point, the board of supervisors has to wake up. Um, and no, know, but like, there's, there's, that's right not now they're, they're boiling true. frog, right? Right. Like, they can keep losing revenue and their services keep degrading, and people just don't vote them out anyway. Right. Like, that's that's like a hypothetical counter counter example here. Potentially. Right. Like, like to enact these kind of reforms basically requires you know given the structure the given like the basically explicit patronage structure of the democratic party it basically requires electing a republican majority in california like right is that really going to happen like uh, why yeah not? like you create like super obvious <laughs> poverty super obvious decline in living standards to me like it's not out of the ordinary and i would say like the the probability is greater than like you know I would say like probably like more than fifty percent chance that they just keep electing Democrats. Like, like it's not California obvious to a, me at all that it's not obvious Cal- to me at all that 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 like basically like material degradation causes a change. And yeah, you know, California was a red state for a while. It it's now a uniparty state. It's really hard to know the future, but I don't I don't think you can just I don't think past is necessarily prologue here, right? Like you know, one of the reasons Republicans are not competitive in California is because the Democratic Party there has such an amazing political machine. And there's a kind of um chicken and egg problem where you need to ha you, you can't just bootstrap a competitive machine when when there's like zero almost zero Republicans <laughs> presence in, in in California politics. Um but, you know, imagine, you know, 
AI will be doing a lot of things, including, you know, making it a lot easier to run campaigns and, uh, and to coordinate all kinds of collective action that is currently not feasible because of, of the, the moat that the democratic party has, has built for itself. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so hard to foresee, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't just like expect reversion to the mean. I think, you know, like, like I said, like it's a kind of horseless carriage fallacy. I think this changes everything and that you, you know, existing coalitions and existing equilibria are going to get uh, shaken loose. Right. In terms of the kind of like Bommel effect thing, I think like a Bommel effect thing that happens is basically, you know, like patronage and corruption, right? Like, the amount of corru- like corruption pays more in a world where like where the actual kind of value is more or like yeah the corruption pays more in a world where it's easier to do kind of like normal like pro social human tasks right so but i'm the, i'm the, not sure if if the incentive actually pushes in this direction Relative stagnation is a you know breeds corruption, right? It goes it goes back to the Eric Weinstein embedded growth type um, obligations, right? You know, if if your society is growing at three percent a year and then suddenly drops down to one percent a year, uh, but everyone has expectations for three percent, um, then that that two percent delta becomes a zero sum contest to extract rents. And you know, we we're we're coming out of a like a forty year period of relative technological stagnation, at least in the productivity statistics. And that was an opportunity for people to nail down their positions and and, and build walls around their fiefdoms. Um, but the ultimate thing that disrupts that is rapid pr- productivity growth. And you know, there's no world where AI becomes you know the, where AI takes off where we don't also have you know just massive productivity growth. And the same you know it was the industrial revolution like going back to Adam Smith that you know did away with the guild systems with the with the patronage of of um, the pre-industrial era, um, the, the old feudal, feudal structures, um, and, and really just was a for like industrialization was like a forcing function for dissolving those systems. And, you know, they built, it built new patronage systems in its place, but, you know, I would expect, you know, this industrial, this fourth industrial revolution to do something similar and break down a lot of existing patronage, patronage networks. They'll build new ones, but you know, maybe the, maybe, maybe the new ones will be, in some ways less corrupt because, um, you know, one of the, one of the ways, uh, information technology helps is to the extent that it substitutes for human discretion. It also substitutes for human corruption. Um, there's a famous mm. case study. I don't know how famous it is, but, um, some city in India, I think maybe it was Delhi. Uh, there's a case study about their transition, uh, fr- uh to, uh, an electronic, uh, rail system, um, for uh, the system for purchasing tickets to take the train. And previously it was sort of a who, you know, kind of game where, you know, the, there was always more demand than there was the the supply of train tickets. But if you were like, you know, if you paid someone off or you knew, knew the, the, the ticket master, uh, you could get on. Um, but the transition to electronic scheduling meant that it was completely transparent and no one could mess with the source code. And suddenly it became much less corrupt. Um, uh, and I, we'll have AI tools to do, do do that for like everything, where you can inspect the source code, inspect the the neural net and its training uh, parameters. You can, and then just ask it to you know apply the rules fairly and evenly. 
and and that that will end up being a kind of again another kind of shelling point where uh in the same way that you know you you have a contract dispute and you select an arb, uh, an impartial arbitration uh, court to hear your case uh you know people will be selecting for you know AI AI arbitration because they'll have faith that it it'll, it will be fair and, th- and this sort of cuts against mm. like the whole narrative that AI is going to like systematize bias like I think in some ways it's going to be like the ultimate um weapon against bias uh, I'm not sure I mean like well, there are kind of two layers to this, right? It's like, can, does it enable impartial judgment versus does it organize society around impartial judgment, right? Like, I, I, I think the case that it enables impartial judgment, like, you know, you can have free judgment, you can have fair judgment for all those who want it, you know, that's true, right? Maybe you can have, like, a contract that defers to, like, an impartial version of the AI, and that's what people agree mm-hmm. to i think that that's like very plausible but like i mean this is dependent on our earlier argument about whether it disrupts basically you know existing political patronage systems if it manages to, if it manages to disrupt those then i think you have a fair chance at making like the legal system you know basically less absurd right well the, the three big pillars of like democratic patronage are you know, the public sector unions and the teachers federation, um, you know, the trial lawyers and the administrative state and, and these different bureaucracies. And uh, like those things yeah. are all, I would, I, I, all would add, I would add uh legacy journalism to that as well, but yeah. Yeah. I and legacy, German, sure. the legacy journalism is like in the process of being disrupted and uh, you know, they got right. rid of all their investigative reporters. They closed down all their local, local bureaus. And like, they're steadily like shrinking around this like subset of, of think piece writers who are also, you know, on next on the chopping block. Um, <laughs> right. And so like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm seeing lots of green shoots in terms of, you know, disrupting patronage. Right. Uh, yeah, I think hmm, the, the journalism case, the journalism case. Hmm, okay. I, I should be reevaluating my priors here. I think that is that that's right. That that's been disrupted. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, it, it feels okay, like it make this argument. Like, let it, me know if you think it's frivolous, right? But to me, like, it, journalism is sort of like a much more like actually democratic system, right? Like, lowercase d democratic, like accountable to the public, right? Like, to to the extent that those that exists, right, within those other systems, I, I think you will expect to see a kind of similar competition. But, like, the question is, like, does that exist within, you know, uh, public sector unions? Does that exist within uh, the administrative state, right? Like, to the extent, once again, like, yeah, where it is possible for basically for, like, conservatives or libertarians to gain power, like, yes. It's not about them gaining power. It's about, like, a a municipality contracting... Mm with an AI company to replace all their vendor systems and <laughs> everything else. And at some point, like yeah, okay, at some yeah. point the municipal union has no members. <laughs> okay. So, so you have basically all of these, I mean, I'm less familiar with this than you are, but okay. So the, that's to me seems pretty convincing. So you have like, 
or like not 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 necessarily convincing, but like like a possible avenue for convincing me of the alternative. Where okay, so you have all of these basically like low level contracts that right now gets distributed in a kind of patronage system, and with AI, AI can basically come in and eat eat all of those like middlemen contracts. Uh, yeah, yeah. One mm. of the things I've been toying with is like, you know, what would a uh, AI native like think tank advocacy um, uh, company look like? Right, like could could we, uh, you know, write. 500 different versions of a policy brief instantly that are tailored to each congressperson's constituents. Mm, um, yes. could, could we mass, uh, mass automate like, uh, survey research and polling? Um, you know, basically like steadily build the products that substitute for the PMC and sell those products back to the, back to their employer. Right, right. Pie- piecemeal, 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 and, that, and you know that that has happened, right? Like the reason the IRS uh, is able to still function despite not having its budget increased, uh, you know, bar- excluding the, mo- the the recent uh, IRA package, you know, it hadn't had its budget increased in twenty years in real terms. Um, it had it, its headcount of employees had declined by like ten or twenty percent, um, uh, and and the mean- meanwhile it was processing hundreds of millions of more returns than it was 20 years ago, including many like social policies, like opportunity zones and all this other junk, the ACA credits and stuff. Like, how was it able to do that? Well, it was able to do that because they've been steadily, uh, steadily replacing systems with automation. And right now it's just been, you know, allowing them to hold their headcount and budgets relatively constant. Well, they, well, they have attrition in their workforce. Um, but you know these things are all going to accelerate, and and you you could you could imagine a world where we have like some libertarian Blake Masters like president comes in and just does it like rips the bandaid and does it all all at once. But I think it's going to be much more uh, incremental. But incremental doesn't mean slow. It could it could be quite rapid. Right. Yeah. Like the the uh, eons here is very very low. Um, hmm. Right. So go more into the kind of like local level contracts. Like how how prominent is that as like kind of a distributor of 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 local power and influence? Oh, it's huge. Um yeah, you know, take the the construction industry. Like constructions have mm. had a declining total factor productivity over the last 20 years. Um it's also construction and real estate are two of like the most localized markets uh like we don't we don't have like na- really a national common market for uh construction and developer developer services um you know it's who you know who who can navigate the the permitting process that's unique to that area and so on um who can get the right tax credits that subsidize the development and, and all that um you know another case in government uh are these like state vendors for for different programs um uh uh, so, uh, you know, for work requirements, for example, in different in work requirements in Medicaid or food stamps or these other programs, uh, there's a couple, there's a handful of companies that work exclusively with Republicans that are based in particular states like Wisconsin and and, and Michigan that, uh, you know, build specialized tools for benefit determination. And, you know, they sell basically a service that says, we'll hook up to your, to your admin system and we'll be able to tell you if someone needs to 
get back to work or not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you see the same thing on the left where, you know, there's in the, in their case, it's sort of this uh, complex of, uh, of uh, advocacy and service delivery nonprofits um, or programs like WIC, the women, women, infants, children program um, that, that supplies half of the infant formula for the country. Um, You know, WIC has this insane industrial policy for infant formula where every, every state has to provide an exclusive contract to a single formula vendor that supplies all the formula for their state. And so you have these state monopolies that are written into law and, and that's been part of this sort of patronage equilibrium where, you know, on the one hand we get cheap formula and then on the other hand, we uh, empower the strong state-based coalition that will lobby on behalf of the WIC program. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Or, or, or car dealerships, right? Like the car dealerships are, oh. are car, car dealerships are already being disrupted by like direct to consumer, you know, auto sales. Right. Um, so just, just take that example and, and, uh, and, and, and extrapolate it. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And then, the, so the mechanism in which this gets disrupted so the mechanism in which this gets disrupted is that like there's basically like an individual level arbitrage, right? Where where like actors within within the system are incentivized to cut people out and replace them with AI. Um, hmm. Yeah, and water flows downhill. This is why you should begin with the, like the transaction cost analysis because that's it's not that transaction costs do everything, but what they do is sort of structure the cost and the cost environment and what and change what becomes like the path of least resistance. So no one has to have like an intentional motivation here. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. I I think this makes this, this makes sense to me. Um, hmm. but is, so the thing is obviously, you know, like these, in these patronage systems, there's an incentive for those, for the people who are already extracting the rents to keep extracting the rents, Right, but do they just lose to the do do they just lose to the um to the kind of like cost function? Yeah, uh, I, yeah. Take, take, take I the River Rhine, right? The River Rhine was like the classic example of of rent seeking because you had tolls, river tolls up and down the river, and so if you wanted right. to ship goods from the southern part to the northern part, you had to basically pay pay off a bunch of people who were just. Their only their only value add was the fact that they happened to be there and were able to stop you. Um, now imagine if you just build an autobahn next to the river Rhine, <laughs> just bypass it yeah, altogether. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter how much they protest; um, you have just totally entered into the system. Hmm. Let me think about this for a little. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, I, I think this is convincing. Maybe I'm just too. Maybe I should just take the white pill. You know, maybe I should just accept it. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right on this. Hmm. Yeah, which is funny because I had a kind of like I had a more kind of moderate um, version of this where I thought this would happen, but it would require a lot of political, basically like an explicit political campaign. But you're saying okay, so. Yeah, I, I think you're right on like the individual level, like the transaction cost analysis. Yeah, hmm. yeah, the, like the like the homeschooling movement didn't win hearts and minds because they wrote like some 
amazing piece for first things or new criterion, right? Like it's just, it's <laughs> yeah, just suddenly yeah. it became possible for everyone to teach their kids at home. Um, and everyone was doing it at once. And so it was able to, they were able to coordinate around communities. Um, and they weren't, it wasn't ideological, you know, maybe for some people it was, but for the most part, it was just people responding to cost. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, like the school closures. Yeah. Yeah. Like to go back to basically constants becoming variables, right? Yeah. I think, hmm. And then the inertia. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Like the, this matches with my kind of view of economic history as well, um, which is probably fairly similar to yours. Uh, I think, yeah, this is, this is a white pill. This is a white, this is <laughs> definitely like a huge white pill on bureaucracy. Um, yeah, the, the question, the question from there is, you know, which versions of the bots will be implemented, right? Will it be basically like a catechized version, uh, or, or not? Right. That that's maybe a big uh well, in the U- in the US at least it'll be competitive and I think that's all you need. Right. Um you know, and Ch- China will be a different story. Yeah, I you know, I think China will be on, is on pace to build a kind of like Confucian integralist like uh you know, social credit system where where they are acting as like some organic whole. Yeah, <laughs> man, to... man, like you put it that way, it sounds actually <laughs> kind of attractive. But you know, like how Confucian is the CCP versus basically, you know, like, you know, like a corrupt utilitarian. <laughs> I, I think it's much more of the latter uh, from both my, like, my understanding of, like, Chinese industrial policy is just, like, so blackpilled because of basically exposure, not like financial exposure, but just knowing kind of how the Chinese semiconductor industry is functioning and having worked in the analog in Canada and in the United States, you know, like the amount of just, you know, full on like bag handling in the Mm -hmm. Chinese uh, semiconductor industry is just, it is like really absurd. It's like, there is this very common phrase, which is like China, or like at least common in, in our circles. I think China is the country with the poorest Chinese people, right? Yep. It, it's kind of like, simultaneously, it's kind of like miraculous almost that you have this kind of system and that it's still managing to be successful and it's still managed to like kind of get the job done in some areas. I don't think it will in semiconductors, at least not even close to the standards, you know, or like the level set by the West. But right. mostly America, to be honest. Although I think like the Canadian semiconductor industry, it's not it's not doing all that bad either. Um, but mostly the United States, right? I think China will ultimately be behind in terms of in terms of the hardware level, at least. Um, yeah, I, I I am very I'm very skeptical that China will be able to like at least catechize the bots very well. <laughs> they, yeah, they will run I, into I don't know problems. I, I feel like people are, have become short China. Too, like prematurely just i think there's a lot of recency bias you know china definitely has like tons of problems demographic headwinds and and like tons of pa- tons of its own patronage and corruption um and the zero covid stuff is crazy but um you know china has reinvented itself before you know i think they they are all in on ai in part because they recognize that they need to they need to 
expand their effective labor supply pretty quickly if they're going to compete in the 21st century century. Um, and in the same way that AI will be disrupting our patronage networks, like, you know, Xi has tried to, you know, root out, you know, his anti-corruption campaign at the, the top level and, you know, all these mid-level provincial leaders and stuff like that, but there's still a lot of opacity in the system. And that could all, that could also all get, get, uh, get exposed. Um, so I, I, I'm a little longer China than I think most people are just because I think that they will be able to do things that won't, that will, that we won't be able to do because of our own, um, I think valid privacy and civil, civil liberty concerns and just more open system. Um, and the thing that the things that they're, they're fucking up on now, uh, aren't like irresolvable. Um, yeah, China is kind of, it's weird because you talked about basically like productivity or like lack of productivity driving corruption in China. It's almost like the opposite, right? Because there, there are so many returns. You can kind of like just let people take their rents. Um, well, it's, it's, it's it, no, I think there, there's more similarity in the meets the eye, right? So, um, there's this paper called, uh, decentralized authoritarian, regionally decentralized authoritarianism. I think, I think that the title, um, and it's a it's a model of how the Chinese government works, and the the main claim is that uh, you know Dan, Dan Xiaoping sort of learned from the Japanese model and the Korean model, and adopted this kind of what you could think of as like a neo neo corporatist or neo, neo uh, corporate man, management structure, where you where you know China a lot of people don't realize is like quite decentralized. Um, but it's it's sort of structured like a pyramid, where uh, local provincial leaders and 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 so forth, um, you know, have a lot of discretion, a lot of autonomy, but they're evaluated on a relatively opaque basis. And if they are if they do well in their evaluations, they move up the rank and get closer to the top of the pyramid. Um, so it is really really a lot like some kind of corporation where you know you have like. Uh, uh, KPIs that <laughs> and you're judging um, who to who to promote. Um, now, what, one of the things this paper does was use use uh, some regression modeling to try to infer what were what are the performance indicators that they're that they're promoting based on. Um, and what they found was a, an extremely high fit to GDP growth. And right. uh, so, provinces, cities, whatever that had high GDP growth, like those people were being promoted. And so it's sort of like the cybernetic system for like growing your economy. Now, the issue is that that is eminently gameable because one way you can grow GDP is by building a bunch of ghost cities. Um, oh. Right. And so, and so like, what do you mean ghost cities? Like just like made up cities? Like the Chinese ghost towns, like just empty real estate. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there, it was a tyranny of metrics where they're trying to like, align leader leadership's incentives to growth. Um, but you know, if, if sources of genuine productivity growth are scarce, you can gain the system by doing a bunch of, um, low value capital investment that shows up in the GDP statistics. Oh, wait, but, is that why you think Chinese, uh, Chinese real estate is basically like completely overproduced? This is like well known, by the way, for my audience. Like, it's, yeah. it's well known that like basically there's a there's a huge supply glut of housing in China. Yeah, I think it's partly a a byproduct of uh, decentralized political decision making that's being evaluated on these imprecise metrics of 
growth and leaders realizing that could game those statistics by overbuilding. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I've never, I've never thought of it in that way. You know, maybe this is a kind of bias, but actually, no, I don't think it's really biased because I think a lot of like a lot of friends I have in China also think this is the case. Maybe this is a kind of like slightly Westernized bias, but that basically they looked at the West, they're like, Oh, property prices going up. And then they decided they wanted to do the same thing or like, not just that they wanted to do the same thing, but they expected the same thing to happen. Um, It's not that different from the big Wells Fargo scandal from a few years ago where, you know, the CEO or someone near the top was like, we need to increase our uh, customer accounts. We need to, you know, you know, uh, so, so they ended up promulgating like these metrics, like, how many accounts did you open this week? And that would be that, you know, given the, the sort of hierarchical management structure, that was sort of the, the thin way that it could evaluate people lower down the stack. Um, then what ended up happening is people lower down the stack realized, oh, I can just create a bunch of spoof accounts <laughs> that don't exist and get my stats up and I'll get, I'll get, I'll get a promotion. Um, so I think something similar went on here. Right, right. This and then kind it, of it, like it's all, you know, and China it's... interacts with like, you know, all kinds of, political economy like the, the the builders and so forth who are getting paid off and stuff like that so it's not, it's more complicated than that but i think that's that's one of the bigger structural drivers yeah hmm. yeah that definitely does seem plausible um yeah that paper i would definitely want to check out as well uh hmm. yeah what uh to go back to kind of more general discussion on china i think Like, one of the things that China, like, the bullish, the most bullish case for China is that just as a society, it is, you know, maybe with the exception of the United States, it is the most kind of, like, um, people think about, like, the idea of talent and, like, identifying talent the most in China out of basically any country other than perhaps the United States, although they do it in extremely different ways. The United States is kind of this really weird example, right? Whether it, where it's kind of like, it, it's like almost illegal to, to talk about certain statistics, but people say, you know, anyone should, should like take their shot at the market and the market is still relatively uh, fair and, you know, produces some of those statistics where in China, like everyone talks about, you know, everyone talks about talent, everyone talks about, you know, what their children are capable of, and are kind of like, really kind of like, dispassionate about it. Or, you know, there's no kind of refusal to basically tell the truth about, you know, individual differences in ability in China. And that allows you to basically pretty honestly find people who have basically executive ability and get mm-hmm. them to the right places as long as, you know, they're willing to play the game, right? But but in, in China, like, the market itself is kind of, like, heavily warped in all of these ways so that when these people are actually using using their power, their kind of incentives, to, or, like, using their power and their talents and their money, they're kind of, like, incentivized to do it in a different way. It is this really kind of weird... It, it is this weird, like, foil to the U.S., I think. Yeah. And that has... But I, I would say, like, I actually am, I'm not as bearish. I, I do agree that I actually came off as bearish on China. Uh, and I do think, like, 
one thing that I think like is is like bullish on China is that I think that China is just like better than the West at academia. And I don't just mean like better than the West in academia compared to like the modern woke Westerners. I mean like just generally better than the West at academia, you know, compared to even like 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the kind of orientation towards academic knowledge seeking. I think yep. Is just higher in China, but I think they are also notably worse at industry, especially industry that involves like not just research, right? That involves right. research, but also involves like another component, like like an organ the organizational component, the kind of scaling, um, deal making. I think you know it, it's just night and day, right? Like like yeah. Peter Thiel, um, China is a weirdly autistic country. I, I think that's correct. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um... You know, the, China still has yet to build sort of uh, an internationally recognized like uh, institution of higher learning, like a Harvard or a Princeton. Um, doesn't mean they can't, but I think one of the barriers to that for them is is the fact that you know Harvard and Princeton and Yale are really like America's export industry, right? And you know, people come from all around the world to go to those schools. Um, whereas I think China is a little bit more a- a- autarkic, and so. Uh, will struggle to build those kind of like institutions that attract talent from all around the world. And so that, that, I think that's one of their biggest, biggest roadblocks in the talent aspect there. I think one of the reasons they're so attentive to talent seeking internally is because they, they are, are unwilling to invite outside talent. Um, I mean, but they, I mean, the, but China, the Chinese universities also have, but what's that? Go ahead. Finish. I was going to say that Chinese academia, is, my understanding, also has a similar problem with with like the real estate and um, and the kind of tyranny of metrics, where you know there's a lot of good academics and good research being produced in China, but there's also a, a hell of a lot of just total garbage that is, you know, basically being generated to to boost citations. Um, I would say that, that that exists to an extent. I mean, I'm not like an expert expert in Chinese academia. But, you know, I, I would say that to the extent that that exists, that actually exists much less than in, in the West. Okay. <laughs> like That may be. Yeah. Like, in terms of, like, relative metrics, you know, on absolute, in terms of absolute metrics, like, the, like it would not surprise me if that exists, right? But in terms of, or, like, it, it might not surprise me if there's, like, a huge opportunity cost to that, right? But in terms of relative metrics, you know, like... I, I do think it is um, actually something that I've been, I mean, like recently, recently, Ho Jean Kuei got out of jail, right? Like this, uh, this kind of like avant-garde, mm-hmm. avant-garde is putting it lightly, maybe genetic uh, scientist in China. He did the germline stuff, the embryo. Yeah. Em- 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 embryo selection, CRISPR editing. Um, yeah. Uh, and that i think i i think that being able to kind of like be incredibly politically incorrect that's not mm-hmm. even like the right way to think of this right because it's not just like you know the right wingers hate this too right like the right wingers also hate genetic editing um for like completely different reasons but basically Yeah I, yeah, I think that, like, the biggest bull case for China, like, if there is going to be, like, a single reason 
why China, like, if there's going to be like a single reason that we like know of today that China wins, um, that China wins in the long term, it's going to be be because of willingness to to gene edit. And obviously, like, the capability of, like, scientifically achieving that faster, um, and so on and so forth. They actually have to get the job done, right? Yep. But to me, that's, like, the biggest, you know, X factor for China. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, with uh, regards uh, to uh, AI, can I just finish this point? Like, I, I think with regards to AI, um, the U.S. will be, like, slightly ahead. But because it's still, like, it's, it's like, crazy that there's still so much open communication. Um, yeah. th- this seems, like, wild to me. But I, I guess it's just, like, a, f- a function of the time we live in, right? There's not much, you know, like, if we were living in the 1940s, right? Or, like, that kind of, like, political environment, maybe, you know, the development of AI would be, like, a super secret, like, Manhattan Project-style thing. But that's just, like is not the case right mm-hmm. it, it kind of seems pretty crazy to me like the the like the, the extent that it that ai is really like really kind of like really democratized like this is just still surprising to me every day but um yeah i think that america will mostly be ahead but china will catch up because you know they can read the papers that american companies put out um and, and so I do think, I, I think that'll be like mostly level. And I do think, yeah, the biggest factor is going to be genetic editing. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it just reminded me of, um, you know, the uh, Metecolis has different prediction markets for uh, the arrival of AGI. And for strong AGI, I think right now it's like 2038. Um, but they have different criteria. They have a version of the Turing test, like a strong version. But one of the criteria for um, confirming uh, the, the market is could a robotic AI sight unseen dissemble and reassemble a Ferrari? Um, hmm. which is, I think it's really interesting to test it. But what 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 it what it tells me is like you know right now, boat uh, China is struggling to build like a wide body airplane, and you know you can be sure that they have like every single Boeing and Airbus schematic. But the issue is they lack some of the technical know-how, the kind of embodied tacit knowledge um, that our engineering communities of engineers have in in the West, um, and that's something that's very hard to replicate because you can't just copy it; it's it's tacit. Right. But I mean, I mean, something that I think AI, uh, robotic AI in particular, um, you know, won't just be feeding it recipes. Uh, neural nets are are the tacit forms of knowledge. <laughs> um, yeah. And so uh, I think that could end up being a solved problem. But on, on the point about eugenics, it reminded me of um, this article, The Curious Case of China's Feminist Eugenicists. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you saw yeah, that I article. I have seen that article as well, yeah. Yeah, they, 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 uh, they proclaim something called Zigong Dada, uterine mor- morality. <laughs> and, they, and they basically argue that um, uh, it's unethical or, or anti-feminist for a woman to... Uh, have the child of anyone who's not like super high IQ, <laughs> and they propose <laughs> they propose the the Chinese state to create a uh, high high IQ sperm bank so all women all women can have the privilege of having uh, big brain babies. Um, uh, but no, I agree that this is like one of their enduring advantages: this willingness to be politically incorrect and and not weird in the in the Western educated industrial sense that that people in the West are, um, and you know, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about sort of the Canadian idealists and, and Charles Taylor has this, uh, little book called the ethics of authenticity. 
where he walks through sort of the different normative understandings of individuality throughout the Western history, where we start out with a kind of classically liberal conception of we're an individual vis-a-vis -vis the state and, this, and insofar as we have sort of equality before the law. Oh, that, and that, that was preceded by a kind of like honor, honor based version of um, individual status. And then he, he says that he argues that this more liberal understanding sort of builds in a tendency towards moving toward moving autonomy ever, ever and ever more in, inward to the point where, um, in the late 20th century, we start developing this ethic of authenticity where everyone has to reveal their, their own, you know, unique butterfly potential. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the, the thing about that is that it's like made up, right? That, that's kind right. of what ChatGPT teaches us, or at least large language models teaches us. I think like Iglesias, Matt Iglesias had a very good post about this where it's like most people's standards for, uh, for artificial general intelligence don't apply to most humans. <laughs> Which, right. which which is correct right and it's not only correct as but it's like completely obvious right right yeah but the but the big thing is like conformity is not an inherent bad you know obviously we're, we complain about how conformist like academia is in, in the u.s but but adhering conforming to norms you know liking mainstream music is not a sin um but the ethic of authenticity pushes you to always uh you know play in this arm, arms race of self-expression where and, you know, this is obviously transmuted into gender politics and, and, um, taken on a, a life of its own there where like your inner authenticity, maybe that you're like, um, some kind of like furry kin or something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The authenticity, you know, the, the most creative, unique things are always exactly the things that are being pushed by, you know, the most, the most centralized propaganda apparatus. Right. <laughs> but, but one of the things like you were saying that AI does is I think potentially like upend some of the forces that were driving weird, like capital weird, uh, culture. Right. Um, because if it becomes super obvious that like humans are more similar than meets the eye and, and um, and all this authentic self-expression stuff is actually not, is actually easier than like solving truck driving. Um, then, but the sources of status competition are going to shift. Right. And I think that's, that that's one reason why China has an advantage in this space is because they don't have the, the weird sort of cultural programming the kind of protestant ethic that we have in the west um and so it's much more it's much more acceptable to be you know more conformist to wear the same school uniforms and to all you know chant the same songs and stuff like that and we we attribute that to a, a kind of collectivism but i think it's a bit of a misnomer i think it's it's really just it's it's really just the absence of this weird thing we have in this in the west where where we've uh almost did this like gestalt where we where individualist ways of thinking um wait so sorry is is this making the case that the u.s is too individualistic or not individualistic enough because i i think like like the the individualist position is to allow gene editing Right. Like this, right. this is also why I think eugenics is like a wrong term, not just because it's like a propaganda term, but because like the actual eugenics movement is like a social movement. It is about making changes at the scale of society. Gene editing. We're not saying, you know, like we're going to mandate gene editing. 
right? This is like a very individualistic thing of like, you right. know, you, you can keep your genetics, you know, if you like your genetics, you can <laughs> you keep, keep your it. genetics, yeah. right? But just like giving people the option, right? This is like a very kind of like lowercase l liberal technology, right? right. It's not it's like, that, yeah. it's that pre, it's that more, it's that pre ethics of authenticity version of individualism, the, the one vis-a-vis the state where the, we're individuals insofar as we have equal dignity before the law. Um, and so, you know, this is where there's a tension between like libertarian classical liberals and woke progressives. You know, I, I don't think the woke progressives are like the progeny of like Judith Butler and neo-Marxist postmodernists or whatever Jordan Peterson says. I think they're really, <laughs> I think they're really just a, a kind of hypotrophied extension of this sort of Protestant ideal of personal revelation. And there's yeah, a healthy, yeah. there's a anything, healthy version of that. But there's yeah. a healthy version of that, and then and then there's a pathological version where you know everything becomes consent. Because you know, in the case of like a lot of these legal changes, like I've I've been making the case that you know this again, this isn't like some woke Marxist stuff working through the system. It's it's really just John Stuart Mill's harm principle, you know, <laughs> taken to his logical conclusion. Yeah, it, it, it's funny, right? There's this kind of you know like. There's this kind of like worship of a fake democracy, right? Where like they don't actually look like they don't worship like actual elections. They worship like this thing that they attribute to democracy, which is really just like the the political, the social values that they like, right? But they call it democracy. They kind of like don't really want to admit that that's not what most people's preferences are. Uh, it's like very much, you know. Well, what's funny is that we started off this conversation, or like I started off this conversation by by quoting Emma Goldman, right? And, you know, to the extent that kind of like Foucauldian analyses have been adopted, I think mostly they've been adopted by the right, right? Like, uh, I think uh, Jeff Schollenberger has had a column about this, right? You know, the people who kind of understand who have like a kind of like closer to Foucauldian way of understanding or maybe closer to Nietzschean way of understanding politics is they're like not only right wing, they're like the most right wing people. Yeah. Right? No, I, one of my favorite books growing up was uh, the rebel cell by Joseph Heath and Andrew Potter. Um, I think it's the nation of rebels in the U S um, and it's this sort of Fabian critique of the new left that, uh, you know, this emphasis of the, 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 the new left and like Herbert Marcuse and these and like the Freudian Marxist types put on counterculture and sort of re- reifying counterculture and and um, and nonconformity and culture jamming as like the solution rather than, you know, the piecemeal politics of like social reform, um, that this was actually deeply reactionary. Right. So like, one of the one of the arguments they make in the book is like you know, really what's going on, but mass, mass society and consumerism are driven by a quest for social distinction. And, you know, the reason why, you know, so, so we end up in this like constant cycle where you have to listen to more and more broke versions of punk music, punk rock until your ears bleed. And, and, and those versions of music have early adopters, uh, who are like on the, on you know, what, uh, Thomas Frank called the conquest of pool. They're, they're chasing status distinction, but over time, they become victims of their own success because if that mu- if that style of music or whatever becomes too popular, it becomes Green Day, and then everyone's like, "You uh, Green Day, it's, it's too mainstream, Nickelback or whatever." Um, and so it's like this endless looping cycle. And 
Heath and Potter argue that, you know, the, the new left approach to, uh, you know, culture jamming and counter just the whole countercultural aesthetic, uh, far from breaking consumerism is actually like the thing that feeds consumerism and is for that reason, deeply reactionary. And he, they, he, he has another book on, um, uh, that talks about how Foucault is being adopted by the right, uh, on a similar theme and you totally see it, right? Like you see, yeah. And, and, and with some justification, like the COVID was like the public health response to COVID is just knowledge and power <laughs> all the way down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't quite want to say Foucault was right, but you know, you know, definitely not about children. <laughs> Um, but if, if the COVID, you know, if the COVID pandemic, if the response to COVID taught us anything, it was, you know, Foucault was not definitely, was not totally wrong. Uh, right. But, but the, the other, the other flip side of their argument is like, um, things that look socially conservative may actually be very, may actually be like socially democratic, right? Like if you want to stop, um, the self-expressive arms race in high schools, then send your kid to a boarding school where they all have to wear suit, all have to wear the same outfit, right? Because that just forestalls the collective action problem of the of the signal, signaling arms race. But then that ends up looking a, a lot more socially conservative, even if it has a kind of capital E enlightenment outcome. Because if everyone's wearing you know the same suit, we have to focus on each other's ideas. <laughs> yeah, this is hmm, this is this is kind of interesting. This is you know like. This is the kind of spectrum of basically, um, you know, like libertarians versus communitarians, right? It is a kind of like, do you, are are we mainly going to, you know, come together and, you know, limit what's what's kind of lanes of competition are available, or are we just going to let let people compete, right? And Hmm. But in this case, the analogy is what AI is doing is making it so every everybody on Earth can like click the button and generate the trendiest, coolest fashion, you know, the the trendiest, coolest, coolest opinions, like all all the sort of self expressive stuff that was scarce is now abundant. No, no, and but so if it's you no longer to, a if you want it to trend, right? You can't just make it write tweets for you, right? Like if you want it to trend, you have to kind of have an idea. You you can do like the the style of, of trends, right? Like you can make like a good you know clickbait YouTube video or like YouTube title, right? But you have to kind of know what's there. You have to kind of know what you're trying to get it to produce, right? This is like this is ultimately where I think you know it's it, it's this kind of self justification, but I think it's also true that basically the world of GPT three is going to really uh empower you know polymath podcast listeners you know all of you guys in the audience mm. really because i mean I, I made this observation uh two days ago while i was testing while i was testing gpt3 is that like basically your ability to use it or like in my case in in that specific context my ability to kind of probe its political leanings right is really downstream of having like a wide knowledge base of stuff yeah. to throw at it Right. And, you know, maybe that's less true if you're not trying to basically test out its boundaries, but it is still quite true in that you look, like need a hook, right? You need a hook to actually get it to produce things, right? Like if you want to, if you want to produce it, 
if you want to make it produce like a marketing, uh, if you want to make it produce an ad, right, you have to kind of know what style of ad would actually appeal to the type of people who want to buy your product. Totally. And maybe there are maybe there are ways to like algorithmically generate that, right? But no, to me, there's still true. like basically a lot of like there's a lot of pattern noticing, right? Yep. There's there's a lot of noticing that you have to do in order to kind of really complement the abilities of something like a large language model. Oh, I totally agree. At least for now, right? Like, um, but yeah, in the, in the near term, it's a huge boon for people with, with synthetic kinds of knowledge the foxes versus the hedgehogs. Um, you know, in my case, I just posted a, a, a sub stack um, talking about this book I created for my mom. Right. Um, my mom wrote the short story about, about our, our deceased family dog. And it was just sort of like this sort of unedited word doc, 7,000 words of, of short story writing. And uh, I p- pumped it through GPT and it did a, an amazing, you know, line edit for, for spelling and grammar and punctuation. And then I use mid journey to produce like 30 different illustrations. And then I packaged it all using InDesign into a nicely formatted book. Um, you know, it took about, it took about the, it took a weekend, right? It didn't cost me really anything. And, but I was only able to do that because, you know, I have some facility with Adobe products. I know, I know how to use these tools and I have, you know, a kind of, vague understanding of what kind of prompts work well. And so I think that, I think, yeah, in the near term, there's going to be, it's a huge premium for people with that, those kind of general knowledge. And, and that kind of general knowledge is also, um, you know, the, I think the, the inverse of that are the kind of virtue signaling types because they, you can really only be that, that um, deranged for lack of a better word. If you, if you only have sort of the one version of history, if you only have like, watch the one, you know, John Oliver episode on the topic or, or something like that. Um, because anyone who have a broader birth of, um, of exposure to different content, to different ways of thinking, to different arguments, to different ideologies, understands that everything is contested. Right. And, and knows that, um, you know, this, their, their big idea is, uh, is not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. Like something that I've noticed, right. Is that there are like, there, there's no like woke apol- uh, apologia. Right, like for the audience, like apologia is like the like the Christian texts that are like basically like reasons to believe in God if you're an atheist, right? They're trying to convince people who are outside of the window, right? To me, like or like at least so far, I, I talked slightly about this with Freddie Deborah as well. Uh, to, to me, so far, there's been like literally none of this, right? It just doesn't exist. Well, it's because it's an anti-enlightenment movement in a sense, right? Um, you know, on the one hand, to the extent it's sort of Protestantism working itself out through history it's it's um it's being propelled by language and in, in that sense it's based on reason but the if you look at how the discourse has evolved it's it's really it's not through persuasion it's not through better arguments it's through a kind of moral blackmail um and forced normative conversion um like the norms have been updated you didn't get the memo have you read the room right um and in that sense it's like deeply non-cognitive it's deeply you know Irrational, um, and this is also why if you go to progressive meetings, and in my job I, uh, you know, have progressive funders and stuff like that. I go to their conferences and so on. It's always about like how do we how do we shape the narrative, you know? Right, right. <laughs> you no, know, our policies aren't working. How how can we like 
have better framings and it becomes very, again, Marshall McLuhan because it's like, we're not um, worried about changing the substance. We just need to package it right. And you even see this with like the Ezra Klein's of the world who, um, you know, at, at one point he sort of lamented, you know, the, the social psych re- research that says like people are basically unpersuadable. It's all affect. And so don't even bother trying. It's all. So, you know, if you really believe that, and I think it's dangerous to believe that, right? Because if you really believe that, then huh? it just becomes warring psyops. It's like, who has the better psyop wins? <laughs> Wait, but I don't know. I, I kind of believe that though. <laughs> like, like the caricature version, like, like I do have the saying, right? I, I do say this quite often that people don't have, uh, people don't have beliefs. They don't, they have reactions, right? If you model like people's behavior in the world, especially, but also their, their, their opinions, it, it really is basically, you know, like a better starting point, you know, a better basically kind of like average predictor, right? Of people's behavior really is, you know, kind of, this kind of like evolutionary psychology, like status interest, basically. And it really is not like rationality, right? Rationality is a very poor predictor of people's, uh, people's right. decision-making. But and... it's the wrong level of analysis, right? Cause it's true that individuals are not the, like, don't have like the Cartesian, Cartesian I where we're like capital R reason where we just can sit and work through, through issues. Um, no, I think that was one of the big mistakes of like, the Enlightenment 1.0, if, if you want to put it that way. This idea that, that reason is just a matter of thinking harder. Um, and, you know, we know from tons of research that, like, the smarter people, if anything, are more prone to motivated reasoning. Um, uh, I think they're actually, it, it's like a, it's like a end curve. Like, you, after, after, like, a bit less than 130, you, you start decreasing again. Right. You also see this with political affiliation. The political affiliation results are much more robust where, you know, after, after 130, you start becoming like much more politically moderate again. Yeah. I mean, I I just, I'm just like, look at Sam Bankman-Fried, for example, for example, like, like the guy clearly has 140 IQ. He's super smart, but he's also using that intelligence for like rationalizing everything he's doing. Um, but this is, but I, I think the way you modify the first enlightenment project is to recognize that actually reason was never situated in individual minds. It, reason is a social phenomena. It's an institutional phenomena. It's having a, having a courtroom where the prosecutor and, de- and defense attorneys like battle it out and the jury has to decide it's, it's having, you know, c- companies are more rational than individuals in, in the profit maximizing sense because they have accounting departments and strategy meetings and people who are, you know, running Excel macros to make sure that they're optimized. Right. So, you really need a system. You need systems to make people rational, right? Like right. you could, you could just try to exercise self-control all the time and always be, you know, first of all, you'll get tired really quickly. Um, but second of all, like if you look at how people, the people who exercise regularly, like they may have a, a touch more willpower, but what they also do is they have systems in place, like setting their clothes out before they go their running clothes before they go to bed. So when they wake up, and they're then they have weakness of will that the, that like running is easy for them because they can just throw on their clothes. Um, so I, I think that we massively discount the value of rationality, and we've been pulled into this sense of sort of moral and epistemological skepticism because all the neuroscience and psychology research is telling us that people are basically irrational. But it was never about the individuals in the first place; it's about 
the social settings and social scaffolding that gives people the the foundation to be rational as a collective. Um, and I think that's like one of the, but th- that's one of the things that's like kind of scary to me about like going down that rabbit hole of, Oh, it's just everything, everything's reactive. People don't form beliefs based on evidence. They just follow, they just confirm their biases. It's like, that is true on an individual basis. But then the question is what kind of institutional settings and social scaffolding are needed such that there is a check and balance and people are guided towards rational decision-making. I mean, or first of all, like, I want you to clarify what you mean by like, it was never about the individual in the first place, because like from my, from my, from my reading of it, historically, like people, people really did believe it was about the individual. Yeah. People did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But like the reason it succeeded is kind of like different. It's just kind of like Hansonian argument where the reason it succeeded is different from the, from the uh from the explicit reasoning or like the explicit justification for it uh yeah yeah, yeah i would agree with that i would agree with that 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 yeah I, I, it is I, I, go ahead well I, I um i reviewed uh hansen and Simler's book for quillette when it came out oh um, interesting so you, you can find that and i offer a bit of a critique on the on this point sort of you know and i have a similar critique for like jonathan Haidt and stuff like that where it's just all sort of precognitive moral foundations or something like that like though that that is true it's just incomplete and the way i would think of it is it's the transition from like kant to hegel right like kant has this like kind of super formalist architecture where you know we're autonomous reasoning agents um and then people like frega or like you know the kind of post-kantian like anarchists like sterner and stuff like that like turn into like total egoists um but then hegel takes kant and kind of naturalizes it into social practices and says, you know, reason still exists, but reason work, works through practices and culture and people uh, as, as a group, not as this like Robin Robinson Crusoe figure. That's just like standing with his and stroking his chin and, and solving problems <laughs> as an individual. It's, it's always, it's always way more social than that. Right. It's way more. Okay. But Yeah, there's an extent to which this is true, which is like, um, there's like the saying, right? Um, you can't change the people around you, but you can't change who is around you, but you can change who is around you, right? Like the people themselves, like the individual people, it's very difficult to actually get them to change. But, you know, like you can be friends with someone and you can, and, and on the next day you can be friends with someone completely different. Right. And who that are, who that is matters, which kind of people get like incentivized and promoted in, in society matters. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. That's like the right level of analysis for these kinds of things. Yeah. And, that, and that's why, you know, conform, that's why conformity can be a problem if it's at the ideological level, because it's sort of like being surrounded by a bunch of yes men. Like you're, you're not setting up your epistemic environment correctly to offset your individual, your human biases. Yeah. Well, the, the real problem is when like conformity is not like one direction. This is kind of like the, the, the Yarvin critique, although I think it's more like general than that, right? It's not just, you know, it doesn't necessarily suggest monarchy. Uh, I kind of get into this argument when he was on this podcast, right? But basically, you know, conformity is, you know, it, it, it's like conforming to what, <laughs> right? right? Like this is almost, 
you know, tautological, but if you're conforming to something good, then it's good. If you're conforming to something bad, then it's bad. Right. But the, the point is like, it's not, it's not inherent. It, the, the nature of it is not inherent to the conformity itself. It's very much based on like what you are actually conforming to. And to me, at least like the real problem here is like this asymmetric thing where people are like conforming, but they're also kind of like incredibly vindictive at the same mm-hmm. time. Right. Like where people are kind of like conforming to the social dogma, but when they encounter someone who's different from that social dogma, they, there's like a double standard there, right? Yep. Which which is a lot of kind of people on social media. I'm, I think this is actually much less the case in real life, right? I think like the Braver Angels people make this point, right? That people moderate a lot in real life. And also it's it's kind of like not for the right reasons, right? It, it doesn't matter if they're actually correct about something, right? I think like very extreme positions about the COVID bureaucracy are also the correct ones, right? Um, but like people are just, you know, naturally more agreeable when they're in person. Like I, I, I've had this happen multiple times at this point where like, I basically have these kind of like very informal parties uh, of like mostly university students. Right. And they're like, most of them are like, you know, pretty based, but usually I'll, if I encounter like a smart left wing person, like that's not going to stop me from inviting uh, him or her to this party. And this has happened multiple times at this point where, you know, people who are like just very, very like fervently right wing or sorry, fervently left wing in terms of their social group, you know, s- suddenly they're like, suddenly they're like, you know, saying a lot of based things now <laughs> at, at this party. It's like, Man, man, you were the intellectual diversity. You you had one job. <laughs> you had one job. But this is kind of like uh this is kind of like the the normal like human pattern, I think. And like you can be for this against this, but it is just how most people behave. Uh but what's weird is that the kind of part of this is social media, but I don't think it's just social media. The kind of like bureaucratic incentives actually uh, disincentivize this, right? You're kind of um, incentivized to be much more partial and much more tribal and actually much less agreeable to people who are out of power, basically. Right. right. And, and and that kind of asymmetry is actually my biggest concern. It isn't like anything inherent to a like, conformity itself. Yeah, I think I saw something else, but maybe you, you may have shared it, shared it. Um, someone conflating or, or, or arguing that, you know, a lot of, a lot of what progressive woke discourse is doing is kind of um, making low class cultures and opinions normatively bad. You know, not, not, it's not just uh, eating McDonald's or Applebee's. It's like, it's. Oh it's yes. Wrong. This was uh this was Oron, I think. Yeah. Right? I think Oron Oron McIntyre, a, yeah. Did a video on it. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And this is, again, like where, you know, I don't necessarily consider myself like based or right wing. And that <laughs> in some ways, I think my my project is, you know, rooted in the enlightenment and rooted in reason. And I think, you know, historically, that was supposed to be a left wing thing. Um, but, you know, to the extent that I'm a class warrior, you know, I think there's common cause with a lot of folks, folks on the right who are recognizing that a lot of this stuff is a kind of class warfare. Right. Yeah. I think like this honestly is kind of like the biggest reason why I don't consider myself 
right wing. There are probably like times in history where I grew up, or sorry, there there are times in history where if I grew up during that time and was like teleported to the present, where I would consider myself like either left wing or right wing, right? But like you really can't, you really can't um, designate yourself as left wing or right wing when there is no legitimate epistemic order, right? Right. Like I, I think right now neither the right nor the left is able to real. They're they're not able. Not only is there like no like general legitimate epistemic order. There's no like local. Epi- uh, legitimate epistemic order right like what is like the right wing epistemic order it just doesn't exist mm-hmm. right the, like and, and you don't have to have like a catechism but you have to have basically like a method of resolving conflict and like you can you can agree to disagree right but it has to be basically you know there has to be some kind of like institutional attempt to to get at the truth and right now neither neither party is like developing that so to even like call myself left wing or right wing, like you call myself right wing, like what what does that even entail? Right? Does that entail like a position on the 2020 election? Like <laughs> I probably have a left wing position on the 2020 election and like a left wing position on like COVID vaccines. Right? And like a and like a right wing position on, you know, like biological sex differences. But like those things are also just true. And even if there are like people who are like deny denying reality, right, on any of those issues, right, like to the extent that that is like tagged as left wing or right wing, I, I think is like completely useless. It's just like, yeah, what am I actually, you know, what am, what am I accomplishing here by like saying I am left wing or right wing? Whereas I don't think this is true. There's like a kind of like naive version of this, right? Which is like the no labels thing. Some people don't. I kind of like wish there was an actual thing to to attach, right? Like I kind of wish there was like a legitimate label to, to attach myself to. I'm not like inherently averse to that. It's just that the existing the existing kind of like groups of people are just like completely inadequate. And I don't mm-hmm. mean, like, completely inadequate just as in, like, I disagree with them. It is, like, that thing about, like, le- legitimate order. It is, like, you know, what is even going on here? You know, there's no way to describe what is going on here as, like, a coherent, like, object, right? Like, the like the, the strong version of this claim is, like, there is no right wing, right? Right. That, that's what I would say if I was kind of, like, trying to be a provocateur on this subject. But I do think I do think like at least some like we- slightly weaker version of this is true. Yeah, I mean, there's no genuine like traditionalism, for example. Um, you know, because oh? yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the, um, you know, Habermas has this line that all traditionalism is neo traditionalism. Re- <laughs> and, and, and the reason is because um, you know we. It, it, it's sort of an indirect strategy rationalism to say that, um, uh, you know, we need, we need to maintain these traditional institutions because they are the accum- accumulation of like stress tested evolutionary wisdom or, you know, the kind of Burkean kind of stuff. Um, and all that is like providing reasons for tradition <laughs> rather than, <laughs> rather than uh, just because like they're an authority and you do what you're told. Like that, and so there's a sense in which there's no going back from like modernity, 
right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And like to the extent that these things are not fixed, or like to the extent extent that things were fixed, they're much less fixed now, right? With with technological change, like we said, constants are becoming variables, right? Like this is also like Jonas Gonis's uh, compact piece, right? There there is no there is no conservatism under under technological technologically changing societies, right? Right. Like, I mean, you can right like Japan Japanese traditionalism say. You know, Japan and and has somehow managed to like maintain both like a kind of traditional social structure and be like developmentalist. Um, but it only has gone so far because they also have like octopus porn and they aren't reproducing. <laughs> I mean the the uh, the typical case here, right? The the typical thing people say is just like just like look at Japan's birth rate, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is that is a correct point, right? Like that is, you know, you know, the, you know, actually look at it, right? It's not it's not doing so great. Um, Although it's the highest now in East Asia. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> Just like the tallest midget. <laughs> that is, yeah. What do you think is the trajectory of both the the right wing? What do you think is, is, is the the coming like right wing intellectual scene is going to be? Um, the American right has always always prefers being in opposition. Um, and I think that's just I think if there's any like I, I kind of like Brian Kaplan's original framing that uh you know the left is anti market and the right is anti left, and that's like all all there is to to it. Like, and the thing that binds a lot of the new right are, is really just opposition to the left. Um, and it, it tends to gloss over all their internal differences. Um, and so it's always hard to know, you know, when the right takes power, how organized they are and how organized they can be because they're no longer in opposition. Um, and so I think what, what's still lacking is a, like a, a serious governing agenda that, uh, that is attentive to these these trends we've been talking about today um and that is more programmatic than just being anti-left and like trying to like you know undercut disney corporation or something have um, you ever read have you ever read my uh i think my short article that was basically like um that was like the the one condition to being a populist is opposing the the existing order right right and th- this is a martin gurry thing too where like the, the internet's enabled like all this mass mobilization and it can topple governments but the only thing that's uniting is this kind of like determinate negation it's like all is it's all just anti um and so you can topple a government but you can't build a new one in its place right right so so like the thing is right you can put something in its place right it's just that that thing is not necessarily like it it does not represent it does not represent the entire population but you can basically like delegate delegate to uh, a subpopulation and that subpopulation is the people who put it in place right um, in the case of the american right it's going to be like the my pillow guy right it's going to be it's gonna, he doesn't they, seem very you know he doesn't seem very competent at all he doesn't seem like you know this is kind of like the i mean like the kind of like super you know paranoid version is that it's going to be like curtis yarvin and like peter Thiel, and like it could be uh like it's not like literally impossible that that happens 
But I mean, it's too too Panglossian <laughs> to ever transpire. Sorry? Like, what does that mean? Panglossian, so too. Yeah. Uh, you know, best of all worlds. It's like too 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 rosy of a scenario. Like the Dominic Cummings kind of uh, tech CEO takeover kind of scenario. It, I mean, could happen. I think that it's more likely. And this goes to Richard Hanania's stuff. Like, you know, the right really has a problem with grifters, and for for whatever reason, they rise to the top. Um, and, um, and so like, until you solve that problem, you don't really have a real counter establishment. You have, a, again, a kind of counterculture and, uh, you know, the, I think the critique of the left wing counterculture applies to the right wing counterculture. It's too, it's too much of a arms race. Like who in this, in their case, it's like going to Latin mass, <laughs> but, um, it's, it's all, it's all just, uh, conspicuous consumption. And until you have a real counter establishment with organization and infrastructure. Uh, yeah, it, it, it becomes a kind of like uh, gamble. It's, you're rolling the dice and hoping that one of the good guys is in charge. But the thing is, right, like, it, it depends if you believe, like, confidence is an actual thing, right? Like, to to me, like the skill, basically, like win, winning is correlated with like actually being competent, and really? like maybe like not with a correlation of like one, but I do think there is like some there there is like some strategy involved, right? You have to be like you just look at twenty twenty two, right? Like you, you look cannot, at twenty sixteen, <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, the twenty sixteen campaign is... team, right? Like the Trump campaign team was not necessarily dumber than you know, like the other other campaign teams. Maybe well, this is been... this is this is you know, like the 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 relative scale of all relative scales, right? But this is like something that's not very like like there are a lot of possible outcomes in twenty sixteen, and. I'm not even sure that like the Trump that like a Trump victory is the worst one. All right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can imagine worse for futures. I, I would just dispute the claim that the competence uh, that our, our, our political system selects for competence, even indirectly. Cause like, you know, it seems to me that our political system selects for being tall, having good hair and, you know, being a demagogue and, um, and you could be a Manchurian version of that, but that's trying to like thread the needle in the Venn diagram. Um, you know, and this, this goes to kind of America's low church politics where we're totally like power is so disintermediated. And at least in Canada where they have, you know, a real party system, um, there's moderating tendencies and people are selected for based on genuine competence and not just because they uh, look good on camera. And yes, sometimes that produces like Aaron O'Toole's or Andrew Shears, who are boring as all get out. But, um, but I think they would have been competent leaders. Um, would they so. have been competent leaders? Hmm. Relatively, you know, Hillary Clinton would have been a more competent president. He wouldn't might not like her policies. What she was incompetent at was, you know, not going to Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay yeah i think we i think we more or less agree we just don't agree on what we mean by like competence or what we mean by like yeah yeah like like i i think that electing bernie sanders rather than biden would have been would have resulted in a less a less left-wing orientation to the government right because like 
like if, if Sanders had been elected, um, you would have had this massive opposition, like, oh, he's a socialist in government, like this, we're going to be the next Venezuela. Uh, he would, wouldn't be able to get hardly anything done. He didn't have any of the, you know, the, you know, retail politics uh, that, that Biden had accumulated over 40 years. Um, Biden, meanwhile, is like this middle of the road, milk toast kind of dude, seems kind of out of it, but yet puts like all these people from like Roosevelt Institute and the new school um, into his government. And they're just having, you know, and, and has all the connections with like the black caucus, the unions. Um, so, com- so competence uh, can be dangerous, obviously, but it's also not clear who it's not clear what, what our system is selecting for. In that case, it was, they were selecting for someone who was moderate, but ended up being much more, uh, much more of a, like trying to LARP FDR. Right. Right. Like, this goes back to the point about the legitimate order, right? But in order for things to be moderate, you kind of need basically like stable positions that aren't, you know, like the biggest example of this is like, okay, which party, which party is anti-COVID, right? Which party wants more restrictions? Which party wanted travel restrictions? Which party wanted masks in like January of 2021, right? And then you see the exact same thing with vaccines and so on. Right. A lot of the problem here is that there is no kind of like legitimate ideological sorting mechanism. It's all kind of like Calvin ball. Um, And yeah, to to, to the extent that that's true, right. Or like to the areas and that's where that's true. I do think they're, they're like, yeah, it does not, it does not select for competence in areas where that's true. Right. It selects for competence in basically, you know, like, can you manipulate the bureaucracy and can you basically like win these coalitional battles? Right. Like, like the Federalist Society is an example of like a very competent conservative institution. Right. In this sense. Yep. And, you know, they won. Right. Yeah. They got and, wh- their... and why did they win? What? Because it wasn't because, because like, they're the organizationally head... competent. Right. And this goes back to our discussion about rationality. Right. It's not that the leader of FedSoc is. So is, is Voltaire, right? It's because, you know, for 40, 50 years, they've been cultivating a kind of ethic, a kind of civil society, like a genuine civil society where lots of the students join, you know, there's debate. They are constantly checking each other's biases and, and as a result, end up behaving much more rationally, playing a long game, having a longer time, pre- time horizons and, you know, working the back room so that they get through could you know put together the list of 20 supreme court nominees for the incoming president right yeah um and and um and that's what we need like if we want american politics to be more rational it's it's not uh having one side win or like a, some kind of consciousness raising you know it's it's going to take institutional reforms that realign incentives and build in more mezzanine structure so there are moderating influences all the way up the stack and people are are checking each other's biases yeah, basically. Okay, then I think we're in agreement here. Um, though I would say there's more of this on the right than you expect. You know, like like the best thing about the right is sort of... This isn't really like Yarvinist in like the monarchist sense, but it's kind of like Machiavellian or like elite school of like just, just like caring a lot more about winning, like actually caring about winning and having this perspective to winning 
that like transcends, you know, like taboos or that transcends, yeah. uh, you know, like purity spirals. Right. Or that applies means to ends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to the extent that I think the conservative, maybe not like the conservative voters, but like the conservative intelligentsia, I think receive the critique of Trump, you know, that like the popularist critique of Trump, uh, especially after 2022, although there are people warning about this before as well. Um, to the extent that they seem much less dogmatic on points like that, then, uh, than certainly than social progressives, but also than the Democratic Party as a whole. I think this is like a very big bull signal for them. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Like I work on the child tax credit in my day job and um, I've written a paper called the conservative case for, for a child allowance makes the case for giving parents money. Um, And so I do, I've done a lot of work in just recent years, like working on the CTC that passed in 2021 and, working with a lot of center left groups and advocacy organizations that are fighting for the same thing. And, you know, I'll, I'll give them briefings. I've even run communication workshops where I say, if you want to appeal to conservatives, talk about how child tax credit and child benefits reduce abortion rates. And it's just crickets. And and sometimes, sometimes it's like, <laughs> I, we can't do that. That's against my values or like, it's just like too squeamish. So it's like, you know, I guarantee if, if if there was an argument to say that cutting the capital gains rates would, you know, close the racial wealth gap or something like that, then the club club for growth will take that message and try to lobby every Democrat. Um, but there's just it's 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 asymmetrical. Like the 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 left is too captured by their sort of self expressive their need for self expression and and using politics as a as a mode of expressing their values. You know, every Democratic uh, administration begins with like all this twitter stuff about like you if you want to know our values you look at our budget <laughs> and all this stuff um whereas but you're right the right kind of place to win and, and, and in some ways the rights patronage the republican party patronage system is much more honest like sometimes it looks kind of goofy because like you know trump puts the the president of accuweather in charge of of the national oceanic administration <laughs> Um, but it's, it's a more like nuts and bolts kind of patronage where, you know, there's a lot of small business owners that are in the Republican party, a lot of like franchisees and stuff like that. And so of course they're going to pass the paycheck protection program to bail them out. Um, where, you know, and a few, and a few Saudi princes (laughs) and a few Saudi princes, of course. Um, but you know, I, as an economist, I, you know, I don't think there's, uh, I don't think the optimal level of pollution is zero. And I don't, I don't think the optimal level of democratic pollution is zero patronage either. I think you need patronage in the system to grease the wheels and so forth. And it's, it's the sort of thing where if you try to push it all the way to zero, it'll just pop up in other places. And so in some ways I, I actually prefer <laughs> the way Republicans do their patronage because it's much more transparent, much more honest. Yeah. This um, is the thing with earmarks, right? You know, you take away the explicit negotiation and it comes back but in this sort of like extremely awful form that can be only used by evil against good yeah in the terms totally. of, in terms of like the omnibus bills right yeah so I, in some ways i think the problem with patronage american patronage as how it's evolved is not that it exists but that it's become less and less legible uh especially on the left where where um you know 
these DEI things, you know, they they passed the executive order that, you know, all regulations are going to have to go through not just a cost benefit analysis, but one that's like one that's uh, equity oriented. And and by the way, only one nonprofit has like the exclusive micro simulation models. That's that they're the only ones who are able to do these analyses. Um, yeah, it's, it's much, it's, it's much less legible and, and, um, and for that reason, much harder to critique because there's a lot of people in the media and the press, like well, well-intentioned sort of liberals who just can't see the patronage that exists and the, and the scope of it because it is kind of hidden. Wait, I don't think it's, I don't think it's less legible in terms of like, you know, it's easier to figure out what's going on. You know, it's easier to figure out who's being passed the bag now if you're just like, you know, a random person than it is then, right? Or especially if you're like a journalist who actually cares about these things, right? You just look at like Aaron Sibarium's work, for example, right? You you can find it all, yeah. right? It's just that, you know, journalism as a profession has just been converted into, you know, basically being regime loyalists. And, uh, and conservative journalists just suck. <laughs> well, this is all downstream of education polarization, too. <laughs> like, there's just not enough college-educated people in the Republican Party. I'm not sure if it's like, no, I don't think that's it, right? There are people who could be, you know, there are people who could be conservative journalists, but they just aren't, you know? They're either working at a think tank or, like, they're lawyers. There are a lot of lawyers, you know, and they're all high IQ, right yep. there are like founders right they just are not you know journalism just does not pay well right this is kind of like parallel to the problem of like tech journalism right my twitter bio right now says the only tech journalist i'm, I'm going to break like a bunch of stories they'll probably already be out by now uh by the time by the time the podcast goes out but i have a bunch of stories about like the political biasing of uh of chat gpt right like you know, yeah, I've been enjoying the threads. This, this should not be. This should not be my job. You know, there should be like the. I think like in in multiple points in that tweet thread, I'm like, man, conservative journalists really suck at this, right? I, I think like right. Anania has also said a similar thing in like his um, article about the scam rights. Yeah, like this is just. I think it is kind of like a honestly like an innovation in the left to so incentivize so incentivize with status being like a regime propagandist like honestly like as a as a like a as a function of like institution building and, and as a function of like winning i really respect it but now that i think about it in these terms right that's kind of like a very hard thing to do like, you know, mm-hmm. if you're, like, someone who has the amount of, like, conscientiousness and, like, reasonably high IQ to, like, be a New York Times reporter to take, like, you know, what is it, like, $80,000 a year, that's, like, that's, like, really a kind of self-sacrifice, right? And you can say yep. it's in favor of status, it's in favor of ideology, like, sure, but it is, like, a very evident material sacrifice, and to the extent that, like, conservatives are not doing this, like, I mean, the conservative way to do this, you know, is just, like, we live in a market economy, you know, raise raise the raise the wages, right? That's, like, a way that conservatism might be able to do this. But to the extent that we have limited funds and we're, like, investing in, like, other things, you know, 
yeah, this is this is definitely just a kind of like psychological disadvantage. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely for increasing Congress's budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we need to do we need to do Singapore, you know. I had Garrett Jones on this uh, on this podcast uh, like three episodes ago, I think. Four episodes maybe by now. Um so, yeah, I yeah, I listened to it. Yeah. Okay, nice. Nice. <laughs> Uh, so I am finally, <laughs> finally uh, exhausted of prep. Uh, do you have anything you you want me to ask? Any interesting uh, ideas to talk about? We just crossed the three hour mark, so I think it could be a good time to sign up. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, so the last question of the show. I mean, if you listen to the episode, the previous episode, you probably know the last question of the show. What is something that has too much chaos and needs more order, and something that has too much order and needs more chaos? <laughs> Hopefully, that we haven't talked about yet. Um. Well, uh, I'll, I'll cite my for for too much chaos, not enough order. I'll cite my um, piece. Nonprofits are under theorized. Right, compare and contrast Canadian politics with the U.S. and explain why I wouldn't be able to ha- be at my think tank job in Canada because we wouldn't we don't need a think tank. <laughs> in <Canada>. <laughs> um. Yeah, the the U.S. Um, advocacy world is far too chaotic it's full of principal asian problems uh, a lot of it is just larping and spending foundation money that is has weak oversight and you know basically co-opted by um a management layer that is, is, steers money far far beyond what uh what the uh original uh you know the rockefellers and the fords and so forth intended Did you say steers money or steals money steers i, I think both is correct but I mean, it's the sort of thing where if you're not your if you're not yourself rich enough to be a Medici, you know, you might settle for you know a two hundred thousand dollar job as a program officer uh, where you get to dole out other people's money, right? And so, and then the, the, your 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 status incentives in that domain are to like you know get published in the New York Times and um, you know make a quote unquote impact or like do all this community mobilization that it doesn't really do anything. Uh, so it's far too chaotic and and far too low church, and I, I think that the U.S. would be better off in in some ways with a lot more public administration, a lot more state capacity that supplants and substitutes for that, and a lot lot, lot stronger parties. Um, things that have too, more order and need more chaos. Um, I would just say, you know, I, I, not to contradict myself, but. Um, but leadership in Congress, like, uh, you know, I, th- I think that uh, uh, my colleague Steve Tellis uh, has a essay called "The Futures Faction" that sort of talks about um, uh, how Congress used to work. You know, we used to. There's always been sort of multi parties in, in the U.S. They just had to be grouped in within parties. So you right. had sort of like the Dixie De- Dixie Democrats and so forth, and then Rockefeller Republicans. Um, that ended up breaking down. And, and we've sort of been in a 20 year or so period of, of ideologically sorted parties with strong consolidated leadership in Congress. So Nancy Pelosi and, and Mitch McConnell sort of run the show. And that has, that's both caused sort of congressional legislative ability to like atrophy, but it's also, um, concealed just how much factionalization there is within Congress. And I think it's contributed to polarization. And so I, I would, 
I'm, I would much rather like accelerate factionalization in Congress and break down leadership script on power and uh, allow more odd bedfellow coalitions. You know, maybe, you know, I'm for getting rid of the filibuster, for example, um, you know, that, that will be chaotic, at least in the short run, because <laughs> you'll have, you know, one Congress will just like repeal Obamacare and the next Congress will have Medicare for all. And then we'll just go back and forth until we find an equilibrium. Um, but we really need it because, uh, because, you know, based on everything we've been talking about today, like the, the changes that are coming are going to require, uh, you know, 60 vote super majorities to do the kinds of reforms that are necessary. Um, and, um, and they won't, they won't happen if, if, uh, everything remains sort of tied down by congressional gatekeepers, uh, and, uh, artificial barriers to, to, uh, legislative compromise. Right. All right. Thanks for being on the show. It was great. Thanks, Brian. That was my conversation with Sam Hammond. It was a great way to kick off the year and a very good outline of what's to come, what I might be working on in the future, what I might be writing over at Substack. And I guess a related announcement is that I'm now offering uh, paid subscriptions on my Substack. Uh, that's mostly more related to the writing side than the podcast side. The podcast will still be uh, 100% free. And so will uh, all of the kind of main free articles. But you will get stuff like the free subscriber chat, the, and the monthly Q&A, and some other benefits that I may add in the future. And, of course, it's a great way to not just support the show, but also to support uh, something very important and very influential in the real world uh, that I will be working on in the short term. I can't say too much about it. You know, uh, hopefully the uh, subscriber benefits are enough to convince you all on their own. But uh, you can wait and see. Uh, that will be very interesting and great to reveal as well. And always, and as always, you can support the show by subscribing, by leaving a comment. Let me know what guests you would like to see on the show. Uh, especially, actually, if you're someone whose uh, point of view maybe differs from the median from the New World guests. I don't know who that would be. <laughs> but uh, who differs from most from the New World guests. I'd really appreciate that suggestion. And like I said at the beginning, uh, let a friend know about the podcast. That would help a lot as well. And I'll be back next week, next Monday, with another great From the New World episode. See you then. <laughs>